0: Few names associated with the Old West are as recognizable as Wild Bill Hickok, and for good reason. In many ways, Wild Bill was the quintessential Westerner of the latter 19th century. Wagonmaster, scout, soldier, spy, lawman, gambler, actor, and yeah, gunfighter. A man capable of extraordinary feats of daring and bravery, yet courteous and soft-spoken when left alone, and kind to children. One of the few frontiersmen who was willing to take his guns off and go toe-to-toe with anyone looking for a fight, but also a man who, even by generous accounts, was a bit too quick when it came to pulling a trigger. He could cuss like a sailor, consorted with ladies of ill repute, and would rather gamble than eat. Hickok was friends with other notable frontiersmen like Buffalo Bill Cody, General George Armstrong Custer, Kit Carson, and Calamity Jane. And he inspired future legends of law enforcement like U.S. Marshal Bill Tillman and countless others a celebrity in his own time, Hickok continues to tickle the imagination of millions. From the early silent film era until now, everybody from Gary Cooper, Charles Bronson, Jeff Bridges, Sam Elliott, and Keith Carradine have portrayed this icon on the big screen. But who was Hickok really? What sort of man was he? As with many notorious characters of the Old West, much of the legend is built on exaggerated claims and outright lies. Fortunately, in Hickok's case, the truth is even more fascinating than fiction. And the truth is what we are aiming for today. So brush out your hair, tighten that sash, and relinquish all aces and eights. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. James Butler Hickok was brought into this world on May 27, 1839 in Homer, Illinois. A farm and family by trade, Father William Alonzo and Mother Polly Butler were also ardently anti-slavery, even to the point of opening up their home to the Underground Railroad. When a senior Hickok wasn't hiding runaway slaves in the family cellar, he would take part in nighttime rides, whisking the refugees from one safe house to another. Dangerous actions that young James and his brothers would occasionally take part in as well. At least they would until their father passed away from a lingering illness in May of 1852. 15-year-old Hickok, in addition to working a plow, was then given the chief responsibility of putting meat on the dinner table, a task that saw James spend long hours in the woods stalking and hunting up what wild game he could find, everything from squirrels to rabbits and venison, while at the same time cultivating an ease and familiarity with firearms that would serve him well throughout his life. And when any spare time was found, James would also hire himself out as a laborer on neighboring farms, anything to help the family make ends meet. Ah, but the farm can't hold the boy forever, especially not one with such an inherent sense of adventure. By the age of 17, James Butler was itching to spread his wings, and I can't say as I blame him. Older brother Oliver had already headed west to California, and Hickok was thinking maybe he'd join him. After all, there was a big, exciting world out there waiting, and this was the height of the California gold rush. Still, though, remaining brothers, Lorenzo and Horace, talked James out of it. Said maybe it would be better for him to stick around for a little bit. Another year or so, at least until they can get their mama and sisters more settled. So Hickok did the next best thing, went and got him a job working on a canal in Utica, Illinois, a career that ended abruptly when he got into it with his boss and threw the man in said canal. Word on the streets is the guy was a little too cruel to his livestock to suit James Butler. Now you may have heard or read that this was the event that spurred Hickok West, that he fled Illinois mistakenly thinking he had killed his employer. This more than likely is not true. Uh, Turns out there's quite a bit of misinformation out there on old Wild Bill Hickok. Much of it is own doing. Seems that Bill got sort of a perverse joy in sharing the most outrageous tales he could think of, and oftentimes these stories found their way to print. Most notably, an 1867 Harper's New Monthly Magazine article written by George Ward Nichols. We'll discuss this more in a bit, but essentially this write-up made Wild Bill caused him to become a household name both at home and abroad. To become a legend in his own time and brace yourself, it was mostly all lies. And not even the believable kind of lies. We're talking brushy Bill Roberts levels of fabrication here. Whether or not these fantastical stories actually came from Hickok himself, as the aforementioned Nichols asserted, is up for debate. As is Hickok's motivation. You know, even as a child, he was prone to quote-unquote leg-pulling and practical jokes, so there's always that. Like I said, more on this Harper's piece later on, just keep in mind that Wild Bill was very culpable in creating his own legend. A strong runner-up, however, would be an author by the name of James W. Buell. His off sided books, The Life and Marvelous Adventures of Wild Bill and Heroes of the Plains, were partly based on Hickok's diary, which Buell claimed to have obtained from Bill's widow, Agnes. Emphasis on the word claimed. As of this recording, no such diary has been located or even proven to have ever existed. Matter of fact, at least two of Hickok's own family members, a brother and an uncle, both said that they did not believe there ever was such a journal. Consequently, and in lieu of a diary, much of the disinformation on Hickok does seem to stem from the imagination of Buell. Like the recently mentioned idea of him fleeing Illinois after mistakenly thinking he killed a man. Now, I know that's a relatively tame story, but trust me, there's some real whoppers in there, some of which we will touch on as this episode progresses. Likewise, you had Hickok biographer William E. Connolly, who wasn't shy about saying that he preferred to forego implications of callousness, cruelty, and selfishness, and to publish more flattering accounts of Wild Bill, thus further contributing to the legend. And finally, there's the fact that there were many other Wild Bills that were active on the frontier around the same time. About 32 at last count, per author and foremost Hickok expert, Joseph G. Rosa. All of this, of course, just equates to there being more than a few tall tales as far as James Butler Hickok is concerned. Bearing that in mind, going forward, you'll hear me offer up a few different versions of certain events. Some of them in direct contradiction with one another. But as usual, I will at least attempt to separate fact from fiction. All right, now that we've got that established, let's get back to the story. Young Hickok would finally leave home in June of 1856, at 19 years of age, with older brother Lorenzo. The two headed off on foot bound for Kansas with intentions to get the family set up on a homestead. Plans were altered in St. Louis, however, when the duo received word that their mother was sick. Lorenzo gave Bill what money he had and sent the youngster on to Kansas without him and straight into the damn history books. Bill initially arrived at Leavenworth, Kansas, but soon found his way to the no longer existing town of Monticello, near present-day Shawnee, Kansas. When exactly he made this move, I was not able to ascertain, but it was likely sometime in late 1856 or early 57. Initially struggling to find work and determined not to spend any of his family's money on himself, James set out earning his keep the same way he did back home, laboring behind a plow for another man's crops. Weren't too long, though, before Hickok became associated with James Henry Lane and his free state movement. Now, I have discussed James Lane before on this podcast way back on the Bloody Bill Anderson episode. I also spoke quite a bit about something known as Bleeding Kansas. Both topics go hand in hand and both had a very strong influence on Hickok, so we might as well do a quick recap rot right out. Just a quick one, though. If you'd like a more in-depth, Explanation, please check out that Bloody Bill Anderson episode. I will link to it in the show notes. Okay, so, even four decades prior to the beginning of the Civil War, the rapidly expanding United States was already bitterly divided over the issue of slavery. Those in opposition didn't want the so-called peculiar institutions spreading to any newly formed states. Those in favor wanted said states, like Missouri, to have the option of choosing for themselves. Hence, the Missouri Compromise, which Congress passed in 1820. This act of legislation admitted Missouri into the Union as a slave state and Maine as a free state, while at the same time prohibiting slavery in any remaining Louisiana-purchased lands north of the 3630 parallel. You know, like Kansas. This compromise would be effectively repealed over three decades later when Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, just a couple of years before Hickok arrived on the scene. Both states were, at that time, still territories, but they had their eyes on joining the Union. With the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the new states could basically choose for themselves as far as the slavery issue was concerned. This ushered in the era known as Bleeding Kansas. Both pro- and anti-slavery factions flocked to the future state, hoping to sway the vote one way or another. And as they began clashing, things progressively became more and more violent. Between the years of 1854 and 1859 alone, there were at least 56 documented political killings and possibly as many as 200. Enter in James H. Lane. A commander during the Mexican-American War and former U.S. congressman, Lane relocated to Kansas in 1855 and immediately got balls deep in the abolitionist movement. As such, he formed the so-called Free State Army, sort of an anti-slavery militia group that would later come to be known as the Jayhawkers. And it was James Lane and his free staters that recruited a young yet accurate AF with a firearm, James Butler Hickok. At least a couple of accounts state that Hickok earned his way into the militia after winning first place in a shooting competition. In what capacity he served, however, is not fully known, at least not by me. Uh, Hickok would write many a letter back home to his family, and in some of them he hinted at the troubles there in Kansas. In one letter, dated November of 1856, Hickok referenced both the Battle of Hickory Point, which pitted Lane's Jayhawkers against a pro-slavery group, and the Massacre of Potawatomi, which involved John Brown. Now, it does not appear that James was a direct participant in either event, but it is clear he was a big supporter of both Lane and Brown. During this same period, Hickok had become very close friends with another freestater, a guy by the name of John M. Owen. Per one quote-unquote old-timers' recollection, Hickok seemed to be lacking any type of particular occupation when he started piling around with Owen, and quote, principally spending his time in having a good time with the boys and astonishing them with his dexterity in hitting targets with his pistol, end quote. Evidence suggests that Hickok rode with Lane and his Jayhawkers for the better part of a year, and possibly both he and friend Owen became Lane's personal bodyguards. Whether or not that's true... Your guess is as good as mine. Like I said, I was not able to find any particular actions that Hickok participated in as a member or associate of the Free State Army. Other than him allegedly serving as Lane's bodyguard, I could only find references to James scouting for the Free Staters, whatever that would entail. He would, however, pick up work with the actual U.S. military in the fall of 1857. It seems that the army was advancing on Utah, some 2,500 troops strong, in order to quell a rumored Mormon rebellion. It takes a lot of wagons to supply over 2,000 troops, and wagons need drivers, one of which was James Hickok. He signed on with the ill-fated Lou Simpson wagon train with someone else you may have heard of, a then-just-11-year-old William Frederick Cody, aka Buffalo Bill. And yeah, you heard me correctly. He was 11. Bill's father Isaac died in April of that year and Cody, now the man of the house, had to start earning a living at a very young age. Took a job with a freighting company as a so-called boy extra. Riding up and down the wagon trains, delivering messages between the teamsters and laborers, which is how he met Hickok. Legend has it that James actually intervenes, saving Cody from getting his ass stomped by an older, much larger man, thus solidifying a friendship that would last a lifetime. Now, Brigham Young wasn't too happy with the army coming for him like that. He ordered his militia to stop soaking for the time being, double up on that magic underwear, and go meet the aggressors head on, bloodlessly if possible. Just so happens Hickok's small wagon train was one of their targets. When it was all said and done, the Mormons burned 26 of the wagons and stampeded a whole bunch of stock, without shedding any blood as far as I know. Papers at the time would report that the Teamsters, Hickok among them, made no defense or resistance whatsoever. Guess they figured they weren't getting paid enough to quarrel with a bunch of crazy-ass Mormons. By the way, if you are a Mormon, relax, I'm just uh messing around. I've met quite a few of y'all over the years, and hands down Mormons are some of the nicest people I've ever known. Crazy history, but very nice people, and they make some very wonderful neighbors. Alright, back to it. Now, this incident occurred in October of 1857 near the present-day town of Farson, Wyoming. Just to give you an idea of how far west Hickok was traveling even back then. By March of 58, James was back in Monticello, where he got himself elected as village constable. Which, take my word on this, is much better than being elected the village idiot. Hickok also took up more farming work on the side, filed on some land all of his own, over 100 acres, and somehow even found time to fall in love. Ah, young love. The lady in question was Mary Owen, the daughter of fellow free Seder and previously mentioned friend, John Owen. Things were heating up quickly, and there was even talk of marriage, but unfortunately, that was not to be. You see, Mary was what was known in those days as a half-breed, her mother being full-blooded Shawnee. And when Hickok's family in Illinois found out about this relationship, they soon sent Brother Lorenzo to Kansas to air quotes, talk some sense into their wayward sibling. And sadly, Hickok listened. He abruptly ended the relationship, sold his homestead, and even moved some 40-odd miles away back to Leavenworth. All because the poor girl just wasn't white enough. Just a sad sign of the times, especially considering how involved with the abolitionist movement the Hickok family was. I guess freedom was one thing, but maybe equality was just a step too far. Gotta wonder how Mary must have felt. Seemed like such a sweet girl, too. Even made James cut off a lock of his hair to send to his mother, knowing that she'd be happy to have such a memento. And I gotta wonder if Bill ever thought of Mary again. Also, what if they had married? You know, would there have been a wild Bill Hickok as we know him? I mean, he would have likely still served in the upcoming Civil War. Everybody did. But what about after? Would he have settled down on the farm there in Monticello, raised a passel of kids? Or would his innate sense of adventure and wanderlust get the better of him either way? I don't know, just something to ponder. Once back in Leavenworth, Hickok signed on with the Russell, Waddle, and Majors Company, hauling freight and driving stagecoaches. An oftentimes dangerous job that saw James travel as far west as Santa Fe, where he possibly became acquainted with the legendary Kit Carson. He also began driving freight to Colorado and back. Now, if the name Russell, Waddle, and Majors sounds familiar, it's because they went on to form the famous Pony Express in April of 1860. And contrary to popular belief, Hickok was not one of their riders. He was just too dang big and tall. Still, though, Hickok would often work around or with the Pony Express riders, like his young friend Buffalo Bill, even helping them to retrieve some horses stolen by hostile natives near the Powder River. Now, James was actually said to be the leader of this bunch, and it was him who came up with the idea to wait until dark and rush the camp. They did so screaming and hollering and making a racket, and they were successful in not only getting their stolen nags back, but a couple hundred Indian ponies to boot. Interesting side note, another stage employee and very dangerous man, Jack Slade, might have also participated in retrieving the stolen horses. He for sure was at the celebration afterwards when he got into an argument with another teamster, resulting in Slade shooting the man dead definitely got to do an episode on old Jack Slade sometime in the future. Now, this is also around the time that Hickok came out on top in a fight with a damn cinnamon bear, or at least that's according to author James W. Buell. Remember him? Evidently, Bill was hauling freight somewhere between Kansas and Santa Fe when he came upon a mama bear and her cubs blocking the road. He tried shooing them away, but to no avail. Eventually, he dismounted and approached on foot, which is never a good idea unless you have a much slower person with you. The mama bear did what mama bears do and attacked the tall, long-haired, bipedal creature approaching her little ones. Hickok managed to get off a couple of shots, one of which actually ricocheted off the bear's skull before she got a hold of him, nearly crushing him to death. Locked in this death struggle, Bill was somehow able to get to his knife, which he used to sever the beast's jugular. And once again, I gotta ask, did this really happen? Probably not. Uh, While there is ample evidence to suggest Hickok was badly injured in late 1860 or early 1861, and while it may have possibly been at the hands of an angry bear, the idea that Hickok killed this bear in hand-to-hand combat is almost certainly the imaginative writings of James Buell. But like I said, something, possibly a bear mauling, did occur. Hickok was put out of commission for a few months, bedridden, And once he was able to move around a bit, he got put on light duty and sent to Rock Creek Station just north of present-day Fairbury, Nebraska, which is a very weird word to pronounce, Fairbury. All right, now this Rock Creek was a dispatch station that initially was just being rented by Russell, Waddle, and Majors. The land it sat on was owned by a guy named David McCandless, or often mistakenly called McCandles. Now, McCandless was a former lawman from North Carolina, With a bit of a rough reputation and when he formed his own ranch there at rock creek he moved his mistress in just across the way much to his wife's great displeasure by all accounts the man was a bit of a bully and he and hickok just did not hit it off from the get-go remember bill was still on the mend he was walking with a limp and one of his arms was next to useless when he first arrived like i said light duty just cleaning out stables that sort of stuff Evidently McCandless liked teasing the younger man, calling him Duck Bill, on account of his long nose and protruding lips, and on one occasion even playfully wrestling with Hickok and tossing the injured man down a little too hard on his back. All in good fun, but the only thing was, Hickok wasn't laughing. And on July 12, 1861, he expressed his displeasure by shooting McCandless deader than hell. How and why this killing occurred is somewhat a bit of a mystery, Remember what I said earlier about various events having more than one version? Well, this is one of them. That said, let's go with the most fun account first. This one comes from Hickok himself a few years later when he was interviewed by that journalist George Nichols. McCandless, in this version, was the captain of a gang of desperados, all of them on the run from a damn hangman's noose. A southern sympathizer. McCandless tried to sway Hickok over to his side and even convinced the young man to hand over the station stock to his brood of bandits. Hickok rebuked the man, so McCandless then had it in for him. Also, according to Hickok, Bill had previously bested McCandless at both shooting and wrestling matches, so I guess there was also some jealousy and bruised ego issues. One day, Hickok pays a visit to the relay station there at Rock Creek. In this account, he's working as a scout with the military as opposed to just a station employee. Anyway, he stops in to visit the superintendent, Horace Wellman, only to be warned by Wellman's wife that McCandless was looking to kill him. And not only that, but he had nine henchmen with him, and they was armed to the teeth. To which Hickok replied, there's two that can play at that game. The words were barely out of his mouth when McCandless and crew show up, dragging a local preacher on the ground with a rope around his neck like a bunch of damn comic book villains. Surround the house, boys, and give no quarter. McCandless ordered his men, prompted Hickok to quickly pull an old Hawkin rifle down off the wall. That and his lone pistol would be his only means of defense, as this was before he took to carrying the pair of six-shooters. Now, I don't know how you are with math, but one revolver and an old Hawkin rifle only comes out to seven shots. And there was ten very bad men about ready to put Hickok under. Oh no, whatever shall he do? Fight like hell, that's what. As soon as the outlaws breached the house, Hickok fired that Hawken then tossed it aside and thumbed back the hammer on that old Navy Colt. One, two, three, four men fell dead at his feet before the others were able to rush him. He knocks one dude down with his fist before getting peppered with birdshot from another scattergun. Then three of them hop on him all at once. Oh shit, time to go into berserker mode. He breaks one guy's arm before in his words, quote, Then I got ugly. I got hold of a knife and then it was all cloudy like. And I was wild. And I struck savage blows. Following the devils up from one side of the room to the other and into the corners, striking and slashing until I knew that every one of them was dead. End quote. Hey, we'll get back to the story in just a moment, but first, I gotta be honest with you. I'm doing this full time now. The Wild West extravaganza is, as we speak, my job. And to tell you the truth, this is sort of a gamble. I'm gambling on myself and I'm gambling on you. To make this work and to continue bringing you true tales from the Wild and Wooly West in an unfiltered and uncensored fashion, I'm going to need your support. And at this moment, the absolute best way you can support the Wild West Extravaganza is by becoming a member of Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Not only will you get to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free, but you'll gain early access before anyone else. You also get bonus content. There is currently Wild West Extravaganza content on Into History that you cannot hear anywhere else, not even on Patreon. And there's a lot more to come. You'll also get to participate in the book club, the community forum, the upcoming live streaming events, and best of all, you won't have to hear my annoying ass voice break into the middle of a story like I'm doing right now. And guess what? You also get everything I just mentioned from all the other shows in the Into History universe, offering the same perks. Come on, what are you waiting for? Go to IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra to become a member today. I love you, and thank you very much for assisting me in helping to keep the Old West alive. Back to the show. All right, like I said, that's Hickok's own version the one he supposedly shared with that journalist. Now, if true, that would be one impressive fight. The only problem is it is totally and utterly a big pile of BS. Here's the thing. First of all, McCandless may have had a bad reputation, but he was no outlaw. The guy was a rancher and a landowner who, as previously stated, actually owned the property where the station was located. And while it's true that he and Hickok just did not get along from the very beginning, McCandless' real beef was with the Rock Creek Station Superintendent, Horace Wellman. You see, the freight and company decided to go ahead and buy the station outright instead of just renting it. They paid a lump sum to McCandless, promising the balance in regular payments. Problem was, them payments were too dang slow and coming. So McCandless started getting kind of vocal, wanting to know where his money was. It got so bad that Wellman actually had to travel and go speak with his bosses, leaving Hickok in charge. Now, up until then, Bill had been staying in a little nearby dugout. In Wellman's absence, however, he moved into the station with Mrs. Wellman and a young lady by the name of Sarah Shull, the aforementioned mistress and not-so-secret sidepiece of David McCandless. As you can imagine, McCandless wasn't too pleased to see how well Hickok and Sarah was getting along. When he showed up for his daily Where's My Money tirade, he couldn't help but notice how close the two was getting. Full disclosure, there has yet to be anything proven between Hickok and Sarah. But while Bill was a bit of a ladies' man, and it's only natural that McCandless would get jealous. Finally, Wellman returns, and McCandless once again shows up looking for his money, only this time he's not alone. He's got two cousins of his, a James Wood and a James Gordon, as well as his 12-year-old son, Monroe. Wellman goes ahead and breaks the news. Russell, Waddle, and Majors are in deep financial trouble and won't be making a payment anytime soon. Sorry, we're just gonna have to be late. This enrages McCandless. He orders that Wellman come outside and take his ass whooping like a man. And if not, he was coming in to get him. Wellman doesn't appear, and true to his word McCandless, possibly with a shotgun in hand, then enters into the station only to see Hickok stepping behind a curtain that kind of divided the room. Not liking that one bit, David tells Hickok to come out from behind there or he drag him out. To which Hickok replies, there'll be one less son of a bitch when you try that. I gotta remember that line. Uh, all of a sudden, a single shot rings out. The bullets strike him a in the chest. He stumbles outside and falls to the ground, dead. By this point, the other two men, Woods and Gordon, they run up and get shot as well, both of them hit by Hickok's revolver. Woods collapses into a weed patch outside as an enraged Mrs. Wellman runs out with a grubbing hoe, screaming like a wild woman, kill him! kill them all, and commences in raining down blows on the wounded Wood, finishing the man off. Gordon actually made it a few hundred yards away before two other stage employees, uh, Doc Brink and George Holbert, caught up with him and dispatched him with a shotgun. Only McCandless' son survived, and likely it was his youth and his youth alone that saved him from this massacre. Now, if you're a little bit confused, you're not alone. First off, nobody knows to a certainty that it was indeed Hickok who shot McCandless. I mean, Superintendent Wellman absolutely had the motivation, and he was McCandless' main target. It is worth pointing out, however, that the mistress, Sarah Scholl, was later interviewed in 1927 at the age of 93. She claimed that Hickok was the one that pulled the trigger, but he did so in self-defense. Also, you know, even in Hickok's outlandish version, he admits to killing McCandless, only in a much more exciting and honorable fashion. So I think it's pretty safe to say it was Hickok who did McCandless in, just like he shot Woods and Gordon. The big question then is why? And was McCandless even armed? What sudden movement or aggressive action, if any, did he take that prompted Hickok to shoot first? Now, if this really was self-defense, then that would kind of depend on one's definition of self-defense. I'm reminded of the HBO series Deadwood, in which Wild Bill shoots a man in a saloon. The fictional scene depicts Tom Mason filling up on liquid courage before slowly approaching Hickok. When he's just a few feet away, Bill, who was already fully aware of the threat, shucks his pistol quick as lightning and plugs mason in the gut the man's gun never left the holster mr hickok a fellow patron protest to which bill simply replies he meant me harm and he did we as the audience knew this and so did this fictional version of wild bill he was defending himself and i guess the idea was why wait for the would-be assassin to actually pull his own revolver you know why give him any sort of an edge Now remember, that scene was all made up, but it does sort of put things there at Rock Creek into perspective. It was a very tense, real-life situation, and I think we can assume that at very least, Hickok felt somewhat threatened. And like I asked before, what did McCandless do, or what did Hickok think he did that caused him to pull the trigger first? We'll likely never know. The guy who played Tom Mason on Deadwood, by the way, the actor, that's Nick Offerman, the same guy who played Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. He can be seen earlier in that same episode of Deadwood, running amuck in a whorehouse with his quote-unquote branding iron firmly in hand. All right, so justifiable or not, Hickok was put on trial for the killing of all three men there at Rock Creek, as were Doc Brink and Holbert. Testimony was heard even from McCandless's young son. According to him, neither one of the cousins were armed, and it was, I believe, even debated whether or not McCandless had that shotgun when he confronted Wellman and Hickok. According to author Joseph Rosa, quote, The trial literally collapsed, and by the time any further attempts at justice were made by the McCandless family, Hickok had left the state, end quote. One last thought on this fight. I think there was a lot that occurred that you and I aren't privy to. Just the whole thing with Mrs. Wellman running out and killing that one guy with a damn grubbing hoe. The way those other two station employees chased after Gordon and, without hesitation, gunned him down. A situation like this doesn't just explode spontaneously. There had to have been a lot of serious tension built up over the previous couple of months, right? Also, I don't think McCandless showed up looking to get in no gunfight. I mean, why bring his 12-year-old son along if that was the case? Now, I know 12-year-olds were a lot different back in those days, but in several accounts from the actual time period, Monroe McCandless' age is specifically pointed out. Everybody knew he was just a kid and had no involvement. What it all boils down to, I think... It's just one of those situations where you gotta read between the lines. One thing I didn't mention was that it wasn't just Russell, Waddle, and Majors who owed McCandless money. There was like a total of three different companies in debt to the man, and he was probably getting a little bit impatient. That said, I don't think patience was his strong point. McCandless was a hothead, quick to anger, and a bit of a bully. I think maybe there was a history of him throwing his weight around more timid souls than he, like that Superintendent Wellman. Maybe McCandless got a little too comfortable making threats he shouldn't have been making, especially not around a man like Hickok. Then there's the issue with Sarah Shull and Hickok. Whether or not the two were romantically involved doesn't matter, so much as whether or not McCandless suspected them of being involved. So I don't know, what do you think? Justifiable or was Hickok being a little bit too trigger-happy? Was this murder or simply a case of self-defense? And what about those other two men? Josh at WildWestExtra.com Hit me up, I'd be interested in knowing your thoughts on the situation, especially if you've ever worked in law enforcement. Now, that particular killing took place in mid-July 1861. The bloody Civil War was just getting started, and Hickok, now fully healed from that possible bear attack, was ready, willing, and able to go serve his country. And of course, as with much of Bill's life, his war record is also riddled with tall tales, inaccuracies, and a whole lot of lies. With that in mind, I apologize in advance for the maybes and possiblies you're about to hear. I can't, in all good conscience, just sit here and repeat the legend. There's plenty of that out there already. I gotta at least try to separate the fact from the fiction, and what you're about to hear is my humble attempt at doing so. Okay, so we know Hitchcock shortly after the McCandless killing, enlisted with the Union Army as a civilian scout, and likely participated in the Battle of Wilson's Creek in August of 1861, a Confederate victory. Two months later, Bill would be found working as an Army Wagon Master out of Sedalia, Missouri, a job that he would continue throughout the winter and into spring before being promoted to Assistant Quartermaster in late June of 1862. This is possibly when he first earned the nickname Wild Bill. And surprise, surprise, there is more than one version of how that handle came into being. One has it that while on a brief stopover in Independence, Missouri, Hickok prevented the lynching of a bartender single-handedly staring down a mob while doing so. As they began dispersing, a woman standing in the crowd yelled out, Good for you, Wild Bill. And the name just kind of stuck. Now this is the account that Hickok himself would later claim. Another story goes that it was Bill's brother Lorenzo who prevented the lynching. This time it was an innocent man accused of stealing horses. Lorenzo stepped in and said that the mob could have the accused over his dead body, to which, once again, a woman yells out from the crowd, this time hollering, My God, ain't he wild? And somehow or another, this nickname got passed down to Bill, who, by the way, wasn't even named Bill or William. So when the hell did that happen? Once again, a couple of different versions. One is that Hitchcock simply took on his father's name. Not too much of a stretch, as Bill would also use the last name Haycock and even Hitchcock in his early years. Also, evidently, Brother Lorenzo had acquired the nickname Billy Barnes as a child. People often called both brothers Bill, with Hickok being known as Shanghai Bill, on account of his lean, tall frame. Which leads us to the third version, as far as the Wild Bill nickname goes, the one that, to me, has the most ring of truth to it. A contemporary of Hickok, George Hance, said that since Lorenzo was so meek and mild-mannered, they called him Tame Bill and our Hickok Wild Bill just simply as a way to differentiate between the two. So take your pick. Whatever the genesis, Hickok would be known by Wild Bill for the rest of his life. Alright, so it appears that Bill's employment as a wagon master ended in September of 62. Following this, he may have seen action at Pea Ridge as either a scout or a courier. Legend has it that Hickok took up a position among the Union sharpshooters, and it was his rifle that fired the shot that killed Confederate General Benjamin McCulloch. Which is not true. As we now know, it was a private from the 36th Illinois with the peculiar name of Peter Pelican. Which lends the question, If Peculiar Private Peter Pelican picked off a particular officer, how many officers of that particular variety could Peculiar Private Peter Pelican pick off? No? Alright, let's just forget that happened. Uh, According to Hickok, he at some point enlisted with 8th Missouri State Militia. No documentation has been discovered as of yet to back this claim up, but the 8th Missouri did provide scouts and spies to infiltrate behind Confederate lines. And it turns out that's exactly what Wild Bill did. At least probably. By his own account, Hickok spent at least five months with the rebels, infiltrating General Price's army as he pretended to be a man named Barnes from Texas. Needless to say, this would have been quite the dangerous assignment. Had Johnny Reb caught on that Hickok was really a damn Yankee, they'd have killed him without hesitation. As it were, he barely escaped. When the time came to make his getaway during what was probably the Battle of Westport in 1864, Hickok stated that he did so under a hell of Confederate gunfire, plunging he and his horse into the river where they made a mad swim for the Union lines. It were the hottest bath I ever took, Hickok later recounted. By March of 1864 and throughout the summer, Bill was employed as a special policeman and detective in Springfield, Missouri, a detail that found him doing such mundane tasks as keeping count of how many soldiers in uniform were drinking at any one given time and even checking the liquor licenses of various hotels. Not quite as exciting as being a spy, but hey, a paycheck's a paycheck, right? There are a few stories about Hickok joining up with the Kansas Redlegs during the war, aka the bad guys from the outlaw Josie Wells. He's also alleged to have served with a bunch known as the Buckskin Scouts, who were sort of a union version of Quantrell's Raiders. Headed by former Pony Express rider William Sloan Tuff, the Buckskins were an independent group of guerrilla fighters who were totally separate from the Redlegs, although the two oftentimes get lumped in together. As far as Hickok, these claims that he served with either group are unsubstantiated, although it is very likely that he knew members of both, especially considering that Tuff had ridden for the Pony Express. By February of 65, Hickok was back doing more scouting-type work, observing enemy positions there in southern Missouri, Arkansas, and even in Indian Territory. And, of course, General Robert E. Lee would surrender a couple of months later, thus effectively ending the war, or at least Hickok's involvement. He was 28 years old and just survived the deadliest conflict this nation had ever known. An accomplished killer, no doubt, but certainly not a famous man, at least not yet. That would soon change, and it all began in Springfield, Missouri during an argument over cards with a former friend named Davis Casey Tutt. Now, once again, there are a few different versions of what caused the rift between these two guys. To quote Jimmy Buffett, some people claim there was a woman to blame, one in particular named Susanna Moore. One of the more fanciful tales of Wild Bill's exploits as a soldier describes the rescuing of two damsels in distress from the clutches of crazed Confederates, one of which was this Susanna lady. Evidently, she and Hickok stayed in touch in more ways than one, and she joined him in Springfield after the war. They soon got crossways of each other for whatever reason, and word has it, she then took up with Tut. Ouch. That always stings, right? I mean, whatever happened to bros before hoes? And what do you do when a friend of yours starts messing around with your girl, even your ex-girl? You fuck his sister, that's what. Hey, don't look at me like that. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying it's the Hickok thing to do. Per the word on the streets, Hickok began seeing Tut's sister and illicit relationship that possibly saw a child being born out of wedlock. But that's none of my business. Whatever happened, the two became at odds with one another to the point that Hickok soon refused to even play poker with Davis. A crude insult that prompted Tut to stand closely by, coaching other players on how best to beat Hickok and even staking them the money to do so. This is just what happened on the night of July 20th, 1865. And despite this gross annoyance, Hickok actually cleaned up, winning an estimated $200 or roughly $3,600 in today's money. This prompted Tut to swoop in, claiming that Bill owed him $40 for a horse trade or something along those lines. All right, fair enough. Hickok handed the money over. But Davis wasn't satisfied. He then begins pestering Wild Bill over another $35 owed from a previous card game. Hickok argued it was closer to $25, at which point Tut just walked on over and snatched Bill's prize, Waltham Pocket Watch, off the table. Hickok ordered that his former friend put it back, but Davis just sneered and walked on out of the room. Didn't help matters none that Tut had him quite a few friends back in his play, friends that laughed in Hickok's face and even tried to bully him into a fight. Now, supposedly, during these days, Bill would often leave his room without strapping on an iron, so he was most definitely outgunned. Still, though, when Tut's buddies started taunting Hickok and told him that Davis would wear his watch in the town square the next day, Bill replied that he probably shouldn't do so unless, quote, dead men can walk, end quote. Now, let me just pause for a second. So far, this is sounding like some real high school shit, right? like the bully just stole your favorite pen off your desk and now you gotta go fighting behind the bleachers after fourth period just to save face. But in this instance, we're talking about two grown-ass men, both of them pushing 30 years of age and both veterans, taking a silly argument so far that it was about to turn deadly. However, this was a different time. I'll fully admit that losing face or even being perceived as losing face on the frontier back in them days could have deadly consequences. That said, sure enough, the next morning, Tut appeared at the town square, and Hickok was there waiting. Davis pulled some Godfather II-type shit and said the money now owed was $45, as opposed to the original $35 from the night before. Hickok still remained steadfast on the $25 amount and both men parted company, unwilling to compromise. A few hours later, they met again. This time, Davis was wearing a long duster with Hickok's pocket watch hanging from it for all to see. Oh boy, here we go. Bill steps forward, navy cold in hand. He stops about 75 yards away from Tut, holsters his iron, and warns Davis not to step another foot into the square. Both men are staring each other down as Tut turns sideways in sort of a dueling stance. All of a sudden, both men go for their guns, both clearing leather and firing at the exact same moment. Onlookers would later remark that both pistols sounded as one. Davis's shot missed, but Hickox did not, his bullet slamming into Tut's heart. Immediately wheeling around, Bill faced Tut's friends, remember them, asking if they weren't satisfied. I reckon they were, seeing as how they quickly handed over their pistols to Hickok. Hey, we'll get back to the story in just a moment, but first, I gotta be honest with you. I'm doing this full time now. The Wild West extravaganza is, as we speak, my job. And to tell you the truth, this is sort of a gamble. I'm gambling on myself and I'm gambling on you. To make this work and to continue bringing you true tales from the Wild and Wooly West in an unfiltered and uncensored fashion, I'm going to need your support. And at this moment, the absolute best way you can support the Wild West Extravaganza is by becoming a member of Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Not only will you get to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free, but you'll gain early access before anyone else. You also get bonus content. There is currently Wild West extravaganza content on Into History that you cannot hear anywhere else, not even on Patreon. And there's a lot more to come. You'll also get to participate in the book club, the community forum, the upcoming live streaming events, and best of all, you won't have to hear my annoying ass voice break into the middle of a story like I'm doing right now. And guess what? You also get everything I just mentioned from all the other shows in the Into History universe, offering the same perks. Come on, what are you waiting for? Go to IntoHistory.com forward slash Extra. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Extra to become a member today. I love you, and thank you very much for assisting me in helping to keep the Old West alive. Back to the show. Now this is a very famous showdown, one of the very few stand in the streets, quick draw type fights that ever even occurred, despite what the movies might say. The only question is how accurate were the events I just described. First of all, let's take a look at the distance. 75 yards is the official story. Others claimed it was only 50 yards, while some maintained that it was more like 30 or 40. Either way, it's some impressive shooting, and while I personally would struggle to hit a target with a pistol at 75 yards, it is possible. I even found a video of a guy on YouTube, Duelist 1954, using an 1851 Navy Colt with period accurate powder and lead. I'll link to the video in the show notes, but this guy sets up a target at 75 yards and he was able to hit it several times. Then, just for fun, dude did the same at 100 yards. The thing is though, to quote Hickok in a future confrontation, that target wasn't shooting back. And I'm not trying to downplay the guy in that video. He was great. But I do think he would probably also agree that things can be totally different in an actual life and death scenario. I'm just not sure how you would recreate that. Other than maybe doing some really strenuous cardio, you know, immediately beforehand. Just getting your heart rate all jacked up, you're breathing heavy. You know, just to somehow simulate the adrenaline rush of an actual fight. Even if the distance was just 40 yards, if it was indeed a quick draw type situation. You know, if Tut was standing sideways and if Hickok hit him straight in the heart with one shot. That's some pretty good shooting. As far as what started the fight, get ready for this. At least one man claims that the pocket watch was just an excuse. And E.C. Maffey, the son of the judge that would soon try Hickok for Tut's murder, claimed that Bill killed Davis over a much more embarrassing incident. Per Maffey Hickok was losing big time in poker one night and he asked Tut to loan him some money and Davis refused. The infuriated Hickok then took the deck of cards and tossed them out the window saying that if he couldn't play, then nobody could. Davis then pulled his revolver and forced Bill to head downstairs, collect the cards, and bring them back up. And of course, while doing so, he lost all vestige of his wild persona. Mafia asserted that the killing of Tut was just a way of soothing Hickok's injured ego, and that Bill caught Davis off guard, gunning the man down before he even had a chance to draw. Is this true? I don't know, but there's not really anything to back it up. Hell, math, wasn't even born when the shooting took place, and as far as I know, no other eyewitnesses would make similar claims. Also worth noting that Hickok was tried and acquitted. While the jury felt like it was self-defense, many of the citizens of Springfield disagreed. They were appalled that a man could just arm himself and wait for hours in the middle of town square for his intended victim to arrive. As for Hickok, he would later say that there was indeed the undercurrent of a woman involved in that fight. And quote. There was a cause of a quarrel between us, which people around here don't know about. One of us had to die, and the secret died with him. End quote. This could or could not be hinting at Tut's sister, Susanna Moore, or just both. I don't know. I do know we've mentioned two gunfights now, Davis Tut and David McCandless, and both of them had the so-called undercurrent of a woman. Remember the alleged relationship between Hickok and McCandless's mistress. Which I reckon means that we ought to go ahead and get something out of the way real quick. According to damn near every source I've found, James Butler Hickok was a bit of a fuckboy with a love life that some compared to both King David and Sir Lancelot. Alright, so here goes. Hickok was said to have been six foot one, standing flat-footed in moccasins. Broad-shouldered with a narrow waist, he wore his hair long, parted down the middle. High cheekbones with a thin nose and just an all-around handsome guy. The handsomest physique I had ever witnessed, claimed author George Nichols. Dress wise, Bill liked to stand out from the crowd. He wore Prince Albert frock coats, boots of the finest calfskin with two inch heels making him appear even taller, fancy vests and shirts, and oftentimes sporting a bright scarlet sash around his waist. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention what Libby Custer, wife of famous General George Armstrong, had to say about Hickok, Quote, tall, lithe, and free in every motion he rode and walked as if every muscle was perfection, and the careless swing of his body as he moved seemed perfectly in keeping with the man, the country, and the time in which he lived. I do not recall anything finer in the way of physical perfection than Wild Bill when he swung himself lightly from the saddle and with graceful swaying step squarely set his shoulders and well-poised head approached our tent for orders. End quote. Damn, Libby. I think I need a cigarette after just reading that. He was a ginger, by the way, Hickok. Kind of. Auburn in color is the way his hair is often described. Various descriptions will say he had anything from blonde to black hair, but a verified lock taken after his death does back up the Auburn claim. Listen, I'm bringing this up, you know, Hickok's physical description for a few reasons. For one thing, you know, while Bill would remain a bachelor for most of his life, he was rarely without some form of female companionship. By all accounts, the ladies love them some Wild Bill. But I also bring up his looks because I find them curious. I'm not gonna lie, I just don't see it. Look, there are a lot of pictures of Hickok available. And I know as a straight guy, I'm probably not qualified to say this, but as far as I'm concerned, the man looks like he fell out of an ugly tree and hit every damn branch on the way down. Dude looks like a big dumb redneck. Uh, No offense to all you big dumb rednecks out there. But I mean, come on, look at that face. No wonder McCandless called him Duck Bill. But that's okay. This should give some hope to those of you out there who, like me, may not be blessed with the most handsome face. Trust me when I say this, women could give two shits. They don't care about looks like we do, okay? Case in point, Wild Bill Hickok and Billy the Kid, both said to have been loved by the ladies and both uglier than a baboon's ass. But you know what? They were confident. They had a little bit of swagger, a little bit of game. I'm willing to bet both men could make the ladies laugh a little. All that will get you way further than a chiseled jaw and perfectly formed nose. Also, Hickok was a bit of a clean freak. bathing much more often than was normal on the frontier, and he liked to keep his clothes clean as well. I'm sure that also scored him a few points with the gals, especially at a time when the average man's odor would cause a dog to vomit. Wash your ass, fellas, and powder up them balls. All right, glad we could get that out of the way. Following the killing of Tut, Hickok would remain there in Springfield for a few more months. And it was there where he was interviewed by the guy I keep mentioning, George Ward Nichols, the one who penned that Harper's new monthly article. I feel like we should touch on this just a bit more as it would really cement Hickok's legendary reputation. In the article, which you can find online, Hickok discusses the killing of both McCandless and Tut. This is where the idea that McCandless was an outlaw leader comes into play and the fantasy of Hickok killing 10 men. The article also has Wild Bill claiming to have killed hundreds of men during the war. Is this possible? Uh, I guess. You know, considering the dangerous missions he was conducting, I'm positive he more than likely drew blood. But hundreds is a bit of a stretch, and I will always be skeptical of such inflated body counts. Hickok, toward the end of his life, only laid claim to 36 killings. As far as official records go, we only know of seven of these, with a few probables thrown in. Long story short, while I'm sure there was some truth in that Harper's article, most of it is just fantasy. Nevertheless, it was printed in February of 1867 and quickly made Hickok a household name, launching him to superstardom. According to biographer Joseph Rosa, quote, The article was widely read, creating much interest in the East and even in England where Harper's had a limited circulation. As a result, it became, in fact, Hickok's death warrant. Until his death nine years later, he was besieged by journalists and others, though eager for more details, few of them were interested in the truth. Hickok became a target for all manner of comment or abuse and was constantly obliged to prove himself the equal of all comers. Small wonder that the man who lived with and tried to play down the legend grew embittered by the cruelties of fate and was far removed from the carefree devil may care boy of the Kansas Border Wars, or the scout of the early 1860s. This man's legend, promoted by Nichols, has, down the years, snowballed into monumental size. End quote. If you'll recall, we left off with Hickok killing his friend-turned-enemy, Davis Tutt. Now, that shootout occurred on July 21st, 1865. Hickok was arrested and charged with murder, but ultimately acquitted. Not everybody was happy with this verdict, yet despite public backlash, Hickok did stick around Springfield for a while and even unsuccessfully ran for town marshal in September of that same year. Once the election was over, I guess Hickok felt like it was time to move on, so he bid Springfield adieu and headed west back to his old stomping grounds in Kansas. Fort Riley, Kansas to be exact. Now, there are some claims that Bill became a U.S. deputy marshal while there at Fort Riley. But while there are documents stating he was recommended for the job, there's nothing showing that he actually worked in such an official capacity upon arrival. What we do know is that he was contracted out by a Captain R.B. Owen in March of 1866 to, quote, hunt up public property for 125 bucks a month, which is a little over 2300 in today's money. Public property in this case referred to the stolen mules and horses belonging to the army, as well as human deserters who, likewise, belong to the army. What's that line from Full Metal Jacket? Your soul may belong to Jesus, but your ass belongs to me. And evidently, Hickok did track down many a deserter. Now, these next three years of Bill's life were his frontier scouting years. This is when he became acquainted with George Custer, renewed and deepened his friendship with Buffalo Bill Cody, and became known as somewhat of an Indian fighter. And yeah, he would eventually, and officially, become a U.S. Deputy Marshal. It was all sort of interwoven. When he wasn't scouting or guiding for the army, he could be found chasing down horse thieves or deserters, or even arresting illegal timber cutters in his capacity as deputy. A job that saw him not only there in Kansas, but neighboring territories as well. He was also said to do a little bit of trapping in his spare time, some hide hunting, and of course a whole lot of gambling. It appears that he would spend the majority of his free time split between the towns of Leavenworth, Junction City, and Ellsworth. There at Ellsworth, Hickok would stay with a lady known as Indian Annie, a fortune teller who lived in a small shack attached to the rear of the Grand Central Hotel. You'll hear the occasional reference that she and Bill were married and that they even had a child together, but neither claim is proven. Hickok certainly had a few violent engagements with the hostiles during his time as a scout, most notably, it seems, with the Cheyenne. But how much of this so-called Indian fighting he engaged in, I can't say for sure. In the words of author Joseph Rosa, quote, The legend built around Wild Bill's scouting days would fill volumes. What truth there is in a majority of instances has been lost, and important dates and other information have been carelessly discarded in favor of the sensational. End damn quote. And there you have it. Uh, I think that's not only a great summation of Hickok's days as a scout, but his civil war service as well. So if it seems like I'm being vague or rushing through certain chapters of Wild Bill's life, it's not intentional. You know, I'd be wasting your time and mine if I just blindly recounted each and every fanciful adventure Hickok was alleged to have taken part in. Many of which, by the way, are just laughable. Give you a great example you may find references to Hickok participating in the Battle of Washita in November of 1868. This is when Custer and his men attacked a Cheyenne village under the leadership of Black Kettle, near present-day Cheyenne, Oklahoma. According to the always entertaining, if not factual, James W. Buell, Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody fought their way through 50 warriors until Wild Bill was able to get close enough to personally dispatch Black Kettle with a flick of his bowie knife. Cool story, bro. Only problem is Hickok wasn't even there, nor was he involved in that battle in any way, shape or form. You know, the more I do this podcast, the more I'm starting to think that certain people have a different definition of the word history than I do, or at least a different uh, expectation. When I start looking into a guy like Hickok, I'm not disappointed when I find out that he didn't shoot lightning bolts out of his ass or that he wasn't eight feet tall. I like the fact that he was fully human, just a man, just like me and you. You know, not 100% good or 100% bad. A flawed human just trying to live his life and figure shit out just like the rest of us. Hickok's life was truly remarkable. It's interesting. The events that we can confirm, you know, the proven activities and adventures, those are plenty entertaining enough for me without having to buy into the myth. All right, I'm getting sidetracked. My bad. And like I said, Hickok was not at the Battle of Washita, but he did scout for General Custer. Although, despite the legend, there is no evidence that he was chief of scouts. He was just a regular old scout. But he did make a favorable impression on Custer. And we know from the last episode that he definitely made a favorable impression on Mrs. Custer, if you know what I mean. But as for George Armstrong, he had this to say in 1874 about Hickok. Quote, Among the white scouts were numbered some of the most noted in their class. The most prominent man among them was Wild Bill. A strange character, just the one which a novelist might gloat over. He was a plainsman in every sense of the word, yet unlike any other of his class. Whether on foot or on horseback, he was one of the most perfect types of physical manhood I ever saw. Of his courage, there could be no question. It has been brought to the test on too many occasions for there to be a doubt. His skill in the use of rifle and pistol was unerring, while his deportment was exactly the opposite of what might be expected from a man of his surroundings. It was entirely free from all bluster and bravado. He seldom spoke of himself unless requested to do so. And many are the personal quarrels which he has checked among his companions by his simple announcement that this has gone on far enough. If need be, followed by the ominous warning that when persisted in or renewed, the quarreler must settle with me. While Bill is anything but a quarrelsome man, yet no one but himself can enumerate the many conflicts in which he has been engaged and which have almost invariably resulted in the death of his adversary. I have a personal knowledge of at least half a dozen men whom he has at various times killed, one of these being, at the time, a member of my command. Others have been severely wounded, yet he always escaped unhurt." And the guy Custer was speaking of just then that was under his command, Um, we'll discuss him coming up here in a little bit. Now, Hickok would get into a bit of a hairy situation involving some Cheyenne warriors in February of 1869. While delivering dispatches between Fort Wallace and Fort Lyon in southeastern Colorado, Hickok got into a running fight with several warriors, one of which was able to get close enough to stick old Bill in the leg with a lance. Luckily, he was able to get away, but was found the next morning near Fort Lyon, horseless and half-rose, dragging his bum leg behind him and using that broken lance as sort of a cane. And thus ended the scouting days of Wild Bill Hickok. Not sure if it was due to that close call or just other opportunities coming his way. He would be on the mend for a brief period, but soon received a letter from home. His mother was seriously ill and requested his presence. And dutifully, Bill came a-running. Or limping, I should say. One of the deadliest and famous shootists of the West, now just a returning son, coming home to see Mama. The trip to Illinois would only last a few weeks, but while there in Troy Grove, Bill rolled up his sleeves and helped out with the farming. He also came bearing gifts for his mother, although other family members would later recall that they had wished he had given her money instead, something she actually needed. I don't suppose Mrs. Hickok cared one way or the other, though. I imagine she was just glad to see her prodigal son, if only for a moment. Returning to Kansas, Bill headed to the town of Hayes, where he found himself elected both as town marshal and the sheriff of Ellis County, where Hayes was located. Now, Hayes was a pretty rough town, in no small part due to Fort Hayes being just a mile away. Them soldier boys stationed there were under military command, of course, but they still weren't exactly choir boys when they came to town for a little bit of R&R. And they weren't even the roughest element. By the time Hickok pinned on a badge, Hayes was sort of a headquarters and setting off point for hide hunters. And you know how they be. It was also a terminus for the railroad, which meant you had the usual types that would follow the ever-westward-expanding line. Pimps, whores, gamblers, con artists, you name it. According to one resident, the so-called Sodom of the plains boasted of, quote, twenty-two saloons, three dance halls, one little grocery, and one clothing store. We did not think anything of having one or two dead men in the streets nearly every morning. Some of them were soldiers from the fort. There was no law except the law of the six-shooter, end quote. And in such a wild environment, it should come as no surprise that Hickok would kill two men in just his first month of official duty. The first was the guy by the name of Bill Mulvay. He got drunker than Cooter Brown and took to running amok in the main thoroughfare, firing off his gun and terrorizing the townsfolk. When somebody tried to warn him that maybe he should take a chill pill because, you know, Hickok is the new law in town, Mulvay said that he'd shoot him too should he dare show his face. And true to his word, when Hickok arrived on the scene, Mulvay leveled a rifle towards the lawman. The quick-thinking Wild Bill motioned behind the inebriated troublemaker, acting as if he was talking to someone else. Don't shoot him in the back, he's drunk. Mulvay spins around to address the mysterious interloper to his rear, and then when he turns back to Hickok, bam. Wild Bill sends around straight through the man's temple. Court adjourned. Maybe. I mean, there are two sides to every story, right? There's another version, of course there is, that simply has Mulvay going for his gun when Hickok attempted to disarm him. And in a Hayes paper, it was reported that Bill shot the man twice, once in the neck and once in the lungs, and he was still alive when the paper was printed. Now, there's no dispute on whether or not Hickok killed Mulvey, but I guess the circumstances are in question. Next up on the chopping block, you had another local hellraiser named Samuel Strawhun, who the good people of Hayes had been trying to get shut up for quite a while. It seems the Straw Hun and a bunch of his buddies were at John Bitter's Beer Saloon one night raising all kinds of hell and having a good time doing so. Evidently, they would all crowd around the bar yelling, Beer! 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 And just as soon as the stressed-out bartender could fill one mug, there'd be several more empty ones placed in front of him. And then these rowdy cowpokes began taking the glasses outside to an empty lot. It weren't too long before the barkeep ran out of mugs altogether and called in Hickok, asking him if he'd pretty please go retrieve his beer times. Which the marshal did, walking back inside the saloon with two handfuls of empty mugs. When Strawhun saw this, he threatened to shoot the next man who tried to interfere with his good time. He then made the fatal mistake of picking up a mug and moving it in a threatening manner toward Hickok. A blunder that caused Wild Bill to put a bullet in the man's head, sending him to that great beer garden in the sky. No word on how the mug fared. Sounds a little, uh, I don't know, extreme. But there was an inquest the next morning and the killing was deemed justifiable homicide. As I touched on a minute ago, this straw hun guy really was a menace there in Hayes. Still though, it should go without saying at this point that Hickok wasn't shy about pulling the trigger. Some I will touch on more here in just a bit. Now these are the only two civilians that Bill killed there in Hayes, but apparently there were more than a few attempts on the lawman's life. More than once, Hickok was fired upon from the shadows, the bullets narrowly missing him. This caused him to take certain precautions. Hickok began walking in the middle of the street as he patrolled, never getting too close to dark alleys. When he walked inside an establishment, like the beer hall I just mentioned, he'd place his back to the bar, never standing in one place too long, never allowing anybody to come up behind him. Now, when Hickok was appointed, it was through a special election. There would be a more formal one, held on November 2nd, 1869, just a little over two months later. And in this election, Hickok lost his job as sheriff to his own deputy. And although he would stick around Hayes for a little bit, his time there as an official arm of the law was over when he left in January of 1870. Bill then drifted on over to Topeka, where he got himself into some hot water. Evidently, the people of Topeka frowned upon whipping another grown man's ass in the middle of the street. Which it seems is exactly what Hickok did. I'm short on details with this one other than someone insulted Bill and he knocked the guy on his ass. He would be fined $5 for, quote, striking straight out from the shoulder and consequently hitting a man, end quote. And I love how specific that is. Why not just say he got into a fist fight or, you know, assault or something like that? Hey, you better stop talking about my mama or I will strike out straight from my shoulder and consequently punch you in your big stupid mouth. It appears during this period that Hickok split his time between Topeka and Junction City, gambling, I'm sure, but also possibly doing a little bit more U.S. deputy marshal work as he was issued at least one subpoena to serve in March of 1870. Three months later, in June, Bill headed on down to Sherman, Texas, where he made a brief appearance in Colonel Ginger's circus, quitting after just one performance. Unfortunately, I was not able to find out exactly what the performance was or why Hickok called it quits. If I were a betting man, I'd say he was likely putting on a shooting exhibition of some sort. And how about the name Colonel Ginger? You just know there was some shady shit going down at Colonel Ginger's circus after hours. July of 1870 once again found Hickok back in Hayes, either fully as a civilian or a deputy U.S. marshal, but not an official Hayes lawman. And it's there that he killed yet again, this time a Medal of Honor recipient the soldier that Custer wrote about that was under his command. The fight occurred on the night of July 17th at Tommy Drum Saloon, and once again, the legend rears its ugly head. One story goes that it was Hickok facing off alone against 15 troopers of the 7th Cavalry, led by none other than Tom Custer, George Armstrong's brother. While Bill held his own at first, but before too long, the men began pummeling him so bad that he pulled out his guns, killing several of them. This, of course, is not true. In fact, the fight only involved Hickok and two soldiers, Privates John Kyle and Jerry Lonegren, who, for whatever reason, decided to jump Hickok there at the bar. Probably had something to do with Wild Bill's winning personality. Uh, No, nobody actually knows for sure. Could have simply just been a bad turn of cards mixed with too much whiskey. The closest thing I could find to a motive was that one of the men, Lonegren, took a, quote, drunken umbrage at Hickok's hair, end quote. Whatever the case, they both came at Bill in a rush. Lonegrin grabbed Hickok and pinned him to the floor, leaving room for Kyle to rush in with a revolver, which he quickly placed against Bill's head, pulling the trigger. Click. Misfire. This stroke of good luck gave Bill enough time to wiggle around and pull out a pistol of his own, firing it blindly behind him, striking Kyle in the wrist and stomach with a third round catching Lonegrin in the knee. They both released Hickok and he fled, assuming, probably correctly, that more soldiers would soon join in on the fight. Now, Kyle was the one who had earned the Medal of Honor when, a year prior, he and two other troopers were attacked by a larger bunch of Cheyenne dog soldiers. Private Kyle helped to save the day, and he was, unquestionably, a brave soldier. Sadly, the rest of the man's life was a mess. He had deserted several times, been court-martialed, and was even wanted by the law under a different name. And he would die of his wounds that next day. As for the other trooper, he was equally as troubled, Lonegren survived the bullet to the knee, but several months later was court-martialed for an altogether different incident and sent to Leavenworth Prison. Now on that night in question, legend has it that Hickok posted himself up at the Hayes City Boot Hill looking to sell his life dearly should the rest of the 7th Cav come calling. There's also rumors that General Sheridan put out a dead or alive order on Hickok, but I'm not sure how true that is. He would never get arrested for this shooting, and as far as I know, there wasn't even any charges brought up against him. At least not that I could find. That said, his movements following the Hayes incident are kind of a mystery. He returned to Topeka, where he likely wintered, spending time with Buffalo Bill and his wife. He would then head to Junction City in January of 1871, where he was seen putting on a number of marksmanship demonstrations, shooting everything from quail and rats in the stable yards to half dollars. By March or April, Hickok made his way to Fort Harker, Kansas, where he received news of a job offer. The position of marshal at a little town known as Abilene, for a whopping $150 a month plus 25% of all fines imposed. Now, if you're not familiar with Abilene, it was the destination for all them cattle herds coming up out of Texas. You see, back in those days, there was no way to ship cattle directly out of the Lone Star State. The ranchers had to drive their herds north to the nearest railheads like Abilene in order to sell them. You had other cow towns pop up later like Newton and Dodge City, but Abilene, also known as the queen of the cow towns, was the first. By 1867, the stockyards there in Abilene shipped 35,000 head of cattle. And by 1871, more than 5,000 cowboys herded an estimated 600 to 700,000 head of cattle up to the Kansas railheads. As you can probably deduce, this means that during the peak cattle season, Abilene was filled to overflowing with God only knows how many rowdy cowpokes. Young men who had just spent months on the trail without so much as seeing a woman, nor a drink of whiskey, and they were all ready to head to town and catch venereal diseases. Now, to be fair, your average Texas cowboy didn't mean no harm. Hell, most of them were still kids. They might get a little loud when they're in town, but they weren't going to hurt nobody, especially not no innocent woman or child. And it was Hickok's job to see that things stayed that way. He wasn't necessarily there to clean up the town or to stop anybody from making poor personal life choices. He was only responsible for the protection of Abilene's citizenry and their property. And one such way of ensuring this was to keep the businesses that catered to the Cowboys on the other side of the tracks, literally. He also posted up notices barring firearms within city limits, something that he also did back there in Hayes. And that's an interesting little side note right there, something a lot of people don't realize. Uh, I guess there's a big misconception that in the old West towns, everyone was just walking around armed to the teeth. We could probably think the movies for that little myth. Truth is, most of your settlements back then had laws far more stringent than we have even today, at least where I live. All right, back to Hickok. Now, if keeping all them cowboys in check wasn't enough, how about the idea that Hickok's predecessor— Marshal Tom Bear River Smith, had not only been murdered in the line of duty, but decapitated as well, if that gives you any idea what sort of job Wild Bill had in store for him. And for all this, he only had three deputies. Still though, Bill hit the ground running. He was sworn in on April 15th of 1871 and wasted no time in letting it be known that troublemakers can leave on the eastbound train, the westbound train, or go north in the morning. North in the Morning, of course, being a reference to Boot Hill. And if you're not familiar, Boot Hill is the name given to local cemeteries where men who quote-unquote died with their boots on were buried. In other words, men who perished in violent confrontations, mostly gunfights. And interestingly enough, the first known Boot Hill was in Hayes, where Hickok was previously employed, a Boot Hill that he himself made more than one deposit in. Now, people had some mixed opinions of Hickok as a marshal. He would gain quite a few enemies after shutting down all the whorehouses per city council orders. And as such, he continued taking the same precautions that he practiced back there in Hayes. He was careful where he placed his back. He was always on guard, always wary of shadows. One friend, upon paying a visit to the little cottage that Hickok shared with one of his lady friends, was surprised to see that Bill slept not only with his revolvers, but a shotgun as well a shotgun he placed in his lap even when he took a shave at the barber shop. his eyes wide open and scanning the streets in front of him for any sign of danger. And make no mistake about it, Hickok's reputation had preceded him. If you'll recall from part one, Bill was made famous back four years prior when that Harper's article was published. And since then, Hickok had made his bones there in Hayes where he killed at least three men. And he would kill yet again there in Abilene. Remember, like I was saying, your average cowboy was okay. Wild, but no criminals. Hell, they were just working boys. The problem lay with the other types who flocked to such towns. Guys an awful lot like Hickok himself. Gamblers and such. And then you had your legit killers. Men like John Wesley Harden, who claimed to have backed old Wild Bill down right there in Abilene. Story goes that Hickok noticed that Harden, then just an 18-year-old, going by the nickname of Arkansas, was armed, so he told him to turn over his firearms. John Wesley did so, carefully removing both pistols and holding them out to Hickok with the butts forward. Then at the last second and with a flick of the wrist, he performed a road agent spin, thumbing back both hammers and pointing the barrels straight at the marshal. Hickok, according to Hardin, then said, You are the gamest and quickest boy I ever saw. Let us compromise this matter and I will be your friend. Let us go in here and take a drink is I want to talk to you and give you some advice. End quote. Did this really happen? Likely not. And I'm not just saying that because I don't think Hardin could have gotten the slip on Hickok, or because I don't think Hickok would have backed down. Remember, Wild Bill was just a man, and Hardin, despite his young age, was already a stone-cold killer, and could have murdered Hickok in a heartbeat, given the chance, and then gone on to sleep like a baby. The problem with this story is mostly that it originates from Hardin. He wrote of it in his book some 20-plus years after the fact, long after Hickok was dead. And if you've never read Hardin's book, well, let's just say it's got quite a few other distortions of truth as well. And I'm not alone in this sentiment, okay? Hardin biographers Parsons and Brown both think the story of him backing down Hickok is bullshit, as does the foremost Wild Bill expert, the guy I keep quoting, Joseph Rosa. Same thing goes for Hardin's claims that he and Hickok became friends and went whoring and drinking together. While I'm sure Bill certainly knew of this dangerous kid they called Arkansas, there's just no evidence that the two were ever friends. Now, this was around the same time that John Wesley supposedly shot that old boy for snoring too loud. Also likely a myth, by the way. He did kill a man in that hotel room. That is an undisputed fact. Just probably not for snoring. And for what it's worth, Jip Clements... Hardin's own cousin also denied the snoring rumor. What's not denied by anybody, however, is that John Wesley Harden promptly got the hell out of Abilene after that shooting. Like, rot right after. If I'm not mistaken, he even climbed out the window. And even by Hardin's own admission, he left as to avoid any trouble with Hickok. Which is just as well, seeing as Al Hickok had his hands full with another Texan. This one by the name of Phil Coe. Now, is an interesting guy, one of the many people on my never-ending list of future episode topics. Born in Gonzales in 1839, Coe went on to serve in the Confederacy during the war and then possibly saw action down in Mexico as a soldier of fortune under Emperor Maximilian. He then kind of drifted and began earning a living as a gambler. Depending on what descriptions of the man you choose to believe, he was either a, quote, quiet and inoffensive man or a red-mouthed, bawling, thug-plug ugly. Coe was also good friends with another gunman I briefly covered before named Ben Thompson. And in May of 1871, the two became co-owners of the Bull's Head Saloon there in Abilene. Now, I have also talked about the Bull's Head previously, I think way back on that episode I did on John Wesley Harden. Evidently, the saloon was called the Bull's Head because they had a large mural or painting on the outside of the establishment depicting a cartoonishly large erect bulls, you know, Tallywacker. As you can imagine, this image was getting all them Christian townsfolk of Abilene all up in a tether, so Marshal Wild Bill asked the boys, Cohen Thompson, to get rid of it. They refused, so Hickok stood by with the shotgun and supervised the painting over of the phallus, much to the irritation of the saloon owners. Legend has it that Cohen Thompson then approached Hardin, this was while he was still in town, and asked him to kill the lawman, saying that Hickok done do nothing but pick on Texans. To Hardin's credit, he replied with something along the lines of, if Hickok needs killing, then why don't you do it yourself? Remember, this is all coming from Hardin, so huge grain of salt. I will say one thing, though. It's apparent in his writings that he had a good deal of respect for Hickok. And if the two were not friends, as I believe, then at very least, John Wesley definitely wanted to be friends with Wild Bill. Now, as far as Phil Coe goes, much like with Tut, nobody knows for sure what caused the hatred between him and Hickok. Some say the marshal was spreading rumors that Phil's games of chance were crooked and that he was swindling hard-working cowboys. Others think it was a woman, again, imagine that, a lady of the night by the name of Jessie Hazel to whom both men were smitten. Whatever started things off, by the fall of 1871, Cole let it be known that he intended to kill Hickok before the first frost. He also began bragging that he could shoot the eyes out of a crow, to which Bill replied, Did the crow have a pistol? Was he shooting back? I will be. That's the quote, by the way, that I was referring to in part one when I was talking about targets shooting back. Now, the night in question, when things finally came to a head between Coe and Hickok, was on October 5th, 1871. And you better believe there are two sides to this story. Boy, are there. Okay, first goes as follows. An angry, drunken mob got themselves worked up over something, as angry mobs are wont to do, and they began marching through the streets, raising hell. They made their way to the Alamo Saloon, where, it just so happens, Phil Coe was waiting. He pulled out a revolver, something he was not legally supposed to have on his person, and fired off a shot into the air. Why, I'm not sure. Don't know if he was trying to scare the mob away, or if this is just his way of joining in on the fun. Hickok hears the shot and comes a-running his good buddy Mike Williams following closely behind. Bill spots Coe with the revolver still in his hand and demands to know what the shooting was about. Phil, not one to back down, explains that he had fired at a stray dog. Something, interestingly enough, that Hickok was actually paid to do when he first took the job as marshal. So maybe that was a little bit of a dig at Wild Bill. I don't know. Hickok cuts Phil off and addresses the mob, telling them to disarm, disassemble, and get the hell gone. No word on how far he and Co were from each other, but it's a chaotic scene. You know, scores of angry drunks yelling, closing in quick, Hickok trying to keep one eye on them and another on Co, an accomplished killer in his own right who, remember, still had a fucking gun in his hand. All of a sudden, for whatever reason, Hickok fires. If this account is correct, then much like with McCandless, I don't know what Bill saw that made him pull the trigger first. Maybe a flicker or a twitch at Coe's eyes, maybe Coe raised his revolver, I don't know. But while Bill did fire both of his guns first, and the timing could not have been any worse. It was at the exact same moment that his friend Mike came running up, and he, not Coe, caught both rounds. In a flash, Hickok thumbs back the hammers and sends two more rounds downrange, these finding the intended target, Phil Coe. But of course, it was too late. Mike Williams, his friend, lay dying. And it was all Hickok's fault. By the way, this Williams guy, he was not one of Wild Bill's deputies, as is commonly believed. He was, however, on record as working at the jail earlier that year. On this particular night, though, he was simply there as a friend. Now for the second version. This one also centers around a mob, just in a more lighthearted, festive way. Story goes that they were running up and down the streets of Abilene, Philco among them, catching people and lifting them above their shoulders until the victims agreed to buy him drinks. They even heaved Wild Bill's massive frame up until he good-naturedly agreed to buy a round. The drinks came with a warning, though. Keep things within the order of the law, or else. I added that or else. Uh, something tells me that Hickok didn't need to give such disclaimers. Now with this version, you still have Co firing off that shot outside the Alamo Saloon, and he still claims to have been shooting at a stray dog when Hickok shows up. The main difference is, this time it's Co that throws down first. He and Wild Bill have words, and Co fires off two rounds, one of them passing harmlessly through Bill's coat, and the other landing between his legs. Hickok fired back, and he did not miss. Remember, you still got the loud, drunken crowd, and Hickok was all alone, no deputies back in his play. He had also just killed a man, so he was all keyed up, and tensions are extremely high. As soon as Coe drops to the ground, clutching his guts, Hickok, out of the corner of his eye, sees somebody else emerge from the shadows with a gun in their hand. Bill quickly turns and instinctively fires, shooting the unknown assailant. Only problem was, you guessed it, it was his friend, Mike Williams. He had come to help Hickok, and I guess Bill just sort of shot out of reflex. Now which version is the most accurate of what actually occurred, that's up for you to decide. There's even another account of Hickok pulling out two Derringers and shooting Coe in the back. The result was the same. Both Philco and Mike Williams were dead and Hickok was pissed. Story goes that he tearfully picked up his friend, carrying him into the Alamo and laying him down on a billard's table where he soon gave up the ghost. Full of rage, Bill then rushed out, going into every single saloon and gambling hall still open, and shutting them the hell down. Sending everybody home and bashing in a few heads in the process, and effectively, turning Abilene into a damn ghost town within an hour. Uh, Just to be clear, Philco did not immediately die when he was shot by Hickok. I'm just adding that in case I uh, inadvertently made it sound that way. He would linger in extreme pain for about a day or two before finally expiring. And word is that the killing of Mike Williams really did a number on Hickok, that he was never truly the same afterwards. Not only would Mike be the last man that Bill would ever kill, but his time as a lawman was quickly coming to an end. All total, he'd spend about eight months in Abilene as marshal. As I alluded to earlier, the cattle herds would soon shift further south to Newton, uh, thus depriving Abilene of all the money pouring in from them thirsty cowboys, And according to some sources, without that money, the city council could no longer afford an expensive lawman like Hickok. He was soon replaced by somebody willing to do the same job for a fraction of the money. Just one quick note on Hickok's time as a marshal. With damn near every one of these killings, there's at least one account that has Bill firing first. You know, depriving his opposition of even the chance of defending themselves. We saw it with that first killing of McCandless. It was alleged in his killing of Tut. And remember the guy with that beer mug? Hickok put around through his head, lickety-split, and nobody even pretends that he had a gun. And now you've got Phil Coe. It does seem, to me at least, that while Bill could be excessive at times, a little heavy-handed, maybe not the type of person you'd want serving and protecting your community, at least not nowadays, right? I mean, I certainly wouldn't. We, normal people, civilians, have rights too, and the police can't just be judge, jury, and executioner. That said, different time and different place, right? In Hickok's day, there was no police academy, no formal training. If you had a rough town that you wanted cleaned up, you damn well better hire somebody rough enough to handle the job. Oftentimes, this came at a cost. Hickok was rough, absolutely. But hell, he was an angel compared to some other old West lawmen. Guys who, at times, found themselves locked up in their own jails or hanging from a noose at the hands of an angry lynch mob. Now I ain't trying to say anything right now, it was just something I was pondering. Another thing, I've made more than a few references, both in this episode and part one, of Hickok utilizing a Navy Colt revolver. Was that really his gun of choice? One thing to keep in mind, while Bill was born in 1837, the evolution of firearms would change rapidly in just his lifetime. I mean, as a kid, Hickok likely only had access to old flintlock shotguns. By 1857, when he was in Kansas, it was said that he was shooting oyster cans at 100 yards away with a 44 caliber Colt Dragoon. But by the 1860s, we have photographic evidence showing Hickok carrying 36 caliber Navy Colt 1851 revolvers, one at first and then a pair. By the late 1860s, rumor has it that he took to carrying ivory-handled Navy Colts. Not too unbelievable considering his fashion sense. His buddy Texas Jack gave him a matching pair of 44 caliber number no. 3 Smith & Wesson revolvers in 1874, but sources claim that by the time Hickok arrived in Deadwood, he was still sporting navies, only by then they were 38 caliber converted to accept cartridges. So I think the consensus is clear that he did indeed favor the Navy Colt. We also know that he carried a shotgun on occasion, you know, whenever his guts told him to. And at the time of his death, he also owned an 1870 model 50 caliber Springfield rifle. And just in case all that wasn't enough, they say Hickok also had a pair of 41 caliber Williamson dual ignition derringers that he would carry in his vest. You know, just to keep people honest. So there you have it as far as Hickok's armory went. All right, now back to the story. Despite killing his friend Williams, and despite being let go from his marshalling job, it wasn't all doom and gloom for Hickok there in Abilene. For it was there that he'd meet his future wife, Agnes Thatcher Lake. Originally from France, though reared in Cincinnati, Agnes Louise Messman ran away while a teenager to join the circus. Or a circus clown, I should say, by the name of William Lake Thatcher. The two fell in love, got married, and traveled all over, performing and entertaining the masses here in the States, Mexico, even Europe. They ended up forming their own little circus, but unfortunately, Mr. Lake Thatcher would be murdered in Missouri in 1869. Undaunted, Agnes carried on. She was apparently one hell of a strong woman, and she took over the reins of the entire operation, running everything and continuing to tour. She'd bring her traveling troop to Abilene in 1871, and that's when she met Wild Bill. Now, despite a clear attraction, the two would not get married just yet. For the time being, they'd part ways as friends, but continue a steady correspondence that allowed Bill to keep to his bachelor ways. Now, following his job as marshal, officially ending on December 13th, 1871, Hickok would drift west to Georgetown, Colorado, where he partners up for a little bit with a friend by the name of Colorado, Charlie Utter. More on both Agnes and Utter coming up in a little bit. They both have big roles to play in Hickok's final days. By the summer of 72, Bill is back in Kansas, Kansas City, and is persuaded by Colonel Sidney Barnett to appear in a so-called Grand Buffalo Chase at Niagara Falls, which he did and which proved to be a financial disaster. But we don't like to talk about that. Uh, not exactly sure what Bill was up to following this brief trip to New York or for a good part of the year 1873. His death was reported numerous times, and he did relish in writing into the newspapers, correcting them of their premature predictions. And he was possibly arrested in Wyoming and charged $50 for assaulting a sheriff. Somebody that went by wild bill for sure was. Whether or not this is our wild bill, nobody can know. I will say, though, that having already worn the badge, Haycock did not seem the least bit intimidated by current law enforcement officials. By August of 1873, Hickok once again headed east towards New York, this time to perform with his old buddies, Buffalo Bill Cody and Texas Jack Omohundro. Now, this would not be the famous Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West show, the one that Annie Oakley and Sittin' Bull were later featured in. That's still a few years to come. This was more just like a play. Cody and Texas Jack had partnered up with famed author Ned Buntline to produce something known as the Scouts of the Prairie. The two frontiersmen, however, could not get along with Buntline, and they soon parted company. Enter in Wild Bill Hickok. He joined up with the duo in either August or September of 1873, and it was pretty much just them three on stage talking and sharing stories, and every now and then they'd have to pretend to fight off an actor portraying a hostile Native American. And when I say it was horrendous, woo! What I wouldn't give to watch just one performance of the Scouts of the Prairie. You ever watch a movie that's an unintentional comedy? Just so bad it's actually funny? Well, that's exactly what Hickok was now involved in. It weren't meant to be a comedy, but that didn't stop audiences everywhere from laughing their asses off at the Scouts turned thespians. And Hickok hated it. Felt like he and the other guys were making fools of themselves, and he was probably correct. He hated everything about it, you know, the bright stage lights just hurt his eye as something fierce. And it wasn't long before Bill began showing his discontent in the form of bullying, believe it or not. Back in those days, they actually used real guns on stage, just with extremely light powder loads. Well, Hickok would get bored and disgruntled and start discharging his pistols extremely close to the legs of all the extras. In some cases, burning them pretty badly got to the point that they had to go complain to Cody about the problem, and he and Hickok had a pretty good argument over it. Still, though, the money was good. Damn good. Bill was making more than he ever had or ever will make. Again, so he stuck it out as long as he could, which only proved to be about six months. Most of their performances were done there in New York City, by the way, with just a short tour along the East Coast just to kind of round things off. And despite the boredom, Hickok was able to find a little excitement on that tour, in Pennsylvania. It seems they stopped at a particular hotel where the manager was worried about some local thugs possibly causing trouble. He asked Cody, Texas Jack, and Hickok to pretty please come and go out of a side door as to avoid any sort of confrontation, a request that they complied with, at least at first. It soon got to be too much for Hickok, all that sneaking around. One night, he decided to go downstairs to a billiards room where the locals had congregated, just to see how tough they really was. One of them old boys put his hands on Hickok's shoulder and called him Buffalo Bill. Said he had been looking for him. Hickok corrects the guy as to his actual name and the man calls Bill a liar. and insult that Hickok answers by knocking the fool on his ass. He then picks up a chair and proceeds to beat the hell out of the other so-called tough guys. It's about four or five all total. And Hickok was next seen returning to his quarters, whistling a little happy tune. Now, despite this bit of excitement, Hickok's attitude had not improved. He had started drinking initially before each show just to calm his nerves. And as time progressed, he took to drinking during each show, a habit he would continue for the rest of his time there in the Big Apple. And of course, when he had any free time, he was gambling heavily and losing heavily. He may have been earning more money than ever before, but like many of us are prone to do, he simply pissed it away. About the only good thing that came out of his time there in the big city was reuniting with his lady friend, Agnes Lake. Not sure what all the lovebirds got up to, but the attraction was still certainly there, and, once again, the two would keep in close correspondence. Finally, in March of 1874, while Bill would call it quits as far as the acting went. The official excuse was that General Phil Sheridan needed him to drop everything and report immediately to Fort Laramie, although no such orders have ever been discovered. And, per Joseph Rosa, Hickok's movements after leaving New York have so far eluded the most diligent research. It does appear that he may have spent time in Denver and Cheyenne before visiting Nebraska. He did some guiding for wealthy English noblemen, and he finally began seeing a doctor about his increasingly troublesome eye problems. The so-called affliction of the eyes, as one newspaper reported, it caused Hickok to begin wearing tinted glasses. There's been a lot of speculation as to what exactly was wrong with Hickok's eyes, but nobody seems to know for sure. When he was performing back east with Cody, there is said to have been an issue or an accident with a stage light that had exploded very close to his eyes. But the general consensus seems to be that it was some sort of progressive disease. Some say it was glaucoma, while others say it was a blindness brought on from syphilis. That is possible, and let's face it, Hickok did get around when it came to the ladies, I'd bet every penny I own that if he did not have syphilis, he at least had some STD. Also, a very likely cause of his problems could have been something called trachoma, a bacteria that infects the eyes and leads to a scarring of the inner eyelid, obviously a very painful development, that then causes a breakdown of the outer surface of the cornea and eventually blindness. There's another theory, however. The idea that Hickok was using his eyesight as an excuse and that the real issue was that he simply lost his nerve. Now, I don't think there's much to this at all. Uh, Once again, not because I think Hickok was some sort of ultimate badass or anything. It's just because, A, there's no proof whatsoever that he had lost his nerve, and B, the idea that he was suffering from some malady of the eyes is about as proven as anything can be proven. Dozens upon dozens of sources point to it. And finally, other than showing a little bit more maturity in his last few years of life, It does not seem like Hickok really changed the way he carried himself. You know, he didn't shy away from dangerous situations or really alter his habits all that much. As was evidenced in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where Hickok headed to some six odd months after leaving New York, New York. The city so nice, they named it twice. And it was there in Cheyenne where Bill would once again link up with his old friend, Charlie Utter. Good old Charlie Utter. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen HBO's Deadwood, where Utter is portrayed by the great Dayton Callie of Sons of Anarchy fame. Now, let me just say I love Dayton and Deadwood. His version of Charlie Utter was phenomenal, just not all that historically accurate. First of all, when Deadwood premiered in 2004, Dayton was 58 years old, two decades older than the real Charlie Utter would have been when he arrived in Deadwood in 1876. Also, the real Charlie Utter was a bit more dapper as far as his attire went. He, like Hickok, sported long flowing hair. He was usually perfectly groomed, wearing fancy buckskins and vests and beaded moccasins, that sort of stuff. And he was very much a clean freak, Charlie Utter, even compared to Wild Bill. It's said that Utter would bathe daily while in Deadwood, something completely unheard of back then. Matter of fact, it was such an anomaly that miners would flock in just to watch the man clean himself, simply as a form of entertainment. Where others in Deadwood would just camp out on the ground or in the back of a wagon as Hickok did, Utter had his own fancy tent with rugs and mirrors and combs to brush his hair. He even had a broom in there to keep his tent nice and neat. Don't let appearances fool you, though. Utter was extremely proficient in the backcountry and very capable. A former trapper and prospector, the dude most definitely knew how to take care of himself. Now, I'm not exactly sure when Utter and Hickok first met and became friends. I actually just received an email from listener Clint, who's a direct descendant of Charlie's, and according to him, their family Bible has a story of Utter and Hickok hunting buffalo together. Unfortunately, he has no dates as far as when the two men met either, but it is, according to at least one source I found, a possibility that the two go back all the way to Kansas in the 1850s. Now, in the HBO series Deadwood, Charlie Utter is almost like a caretaker of sorts for Wild Bill, just deeply concerned with his actions, always trying to steer him on the right path. Not sure how true to life that is, but when the two were in Cheyenne, they were said to have been damn near inseparable. Wherever Hickok was, Charlie Utter would be nearby, keeping a close eye on things in case any of Bill's old enemies tried to slide on in. That said, when interviewed years later, Utter would only say that he was simply Bill's friend and that he never acted as any sort of a bodyguard. As to what the two men were doing in Cheyenne in 1874, I can't speak for Charlie Utter, but Hickok was mostly gambling. And by all accounts, badly. Doyle Brunson he weren't. Now, Cheyenne, only about seven years old at the time that Hickok arrived, had in the past been a pretty rough town. And if Wild Bill had shown up a few years prior, they'd have probably begged him to pin on a badge. By 1874, however, the people of Cheyenne already had them, a tough lawman, a guy by the name of Jeff Carr. They also had them some tough laws, especially when it came to vagrancy. Now, vagrancy, by definition, is a state of homelessness without regular employment or income. And various anti-vagrancy laws have been used to exploit the poor and the downtrodden over the years. They've also been used, like in Cheyenne, as an excuse to arrest, fine, or simply run out of town any undesirables. Namely gamblers or other people of ill repute that might cause trouble. People like Wild Bill Hickok. At one point, a notice was posted there in Cheyenne listing Hickok by name as a vagrant and ordering him and everybody else on the list to leave town within 24 hours or risk being forcibly ejected. Bill, upon seeing the sign, took his knife to it, cutting it to shreds and stating that he'd leave town when he felt like it. Shortly thereafter, he and the aforementioned local lawman had them a little confrontation. Carr allegedly spotted Bill loitering outside a saloon and called out across the street. Hello, Bill. Guess I'll have to run you out of town soon. To which Hickok coolly replied, Jeff Carr, when I go, you'll go with me. A Cheyenne paper would later report on the incident, also shedding a little bit of light on Hickok's well-being during this time. The article in question read, in part, While Bill seems to have become a very tame and worthless loafer and bummer, Our city marshal ordered him out of town by virtue of the provision of the Vagrancy Act only a few months ago. But Bill cordially invited the officer to go to a much warmer climate than this. The write-up also goes on to say, quote, Years ago, before wine and women had ruined his constitution and impaired his faculties, he, Hickok, was more worthy of the fame which he attained on the border. End quote. Man, that wine and women. They'll get you in the end, boy, let me tell you. And they got Hickok. This period of his life there in Cheyenne is said to be his low point. A rock bottom of sorts, according to many historians. Hickok had no viable income, no employment. He drank a lot. And he gambled what little money he had away. His eyesight was on the decline. And he had even taken to walking with a cane at times due to rheumatism. The cane is kind of cool, though. Uh, It was said to have been made from a billard's cue. And he used it, at least on one occasion, to whack a surly pharaoh dealer upside the head. As far as the vagrancy claims go, this was, in Bill's case, simply a way of labeling him as an undesirable. Hickok was never a vagabond or completely destitute or anything like that. Hell, even with the wine and women, Bill still had him plenty of friends and he was still highly respected in many circles. Still, though, he would be officially charged with vagrancy in June of 1875 and have a warrant issued for his arrest. An arrest that never came, by the way. When the case was to be tried in November, Hickok was nowhere to be found. Once again, for at least the latter part of 1875, nobody knows where exactly the hell Hickok was. He would at times wander in and out of Cheyenne despite the charges, and he likely spent New Year's there, celebrating the centennial and he was definitely there in Cheyenne in February of 1876 when things started to improve. His long-distance girlfriend, Agnes, showed up, and on March 5th, the couple finally made things official and tied the knot. She was 11 years older than Bill, by the way. He was just 38 years of age when they got married, compared to Agnes being a few months shy of her 50th birthday. MILF. The two would honeymoon in Cincinnati, where Agnes grew up, but Bill's eyes just kept getting worse. He made a brief stop at his mother's home, one last visit, before heading down to St. Louis, where he likely sought medical treatment. He would also end up making several trips to Kansas City, where he had a doctor check out his eyes as well. By March, he was back in Cheyenne and described as being, quote, trifle pale due to a recent illness. He would then soon return to St. Louis, where he began making plans for a much larger trip, his last trip. Or so it would turn out. It would be a joint venture with his friend Charlie Utter, bound for a newly formed mining camp up in the Black Hills that people had taken to call in Deadwood. Now before we go any further, you may be asking what was so special about this Deadwood place. Why was everybody in such a rush to get there, and what the hell are the Black Hills anyway? The Black Hills are located in the eastern part of present-day South Dakota, a culturally significant and holy area for the many tribes who laid claim to it over the years. Tribes like the Ericary, the Cheyenne, Crow, Arapaho, Kiowa, and finally, from about the late 1700s all the way up to this episode's timeline, the Lakota, who were ceded a huge swath of land following Red Cloud's War in the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, a so-called Great Reservation taking up the western halves of present-day states Nebraska and South Dakota, a good chunk of eastern Wyoming, the northeast corner of Colorado, southeast Montana, and even a bit of southwest North Dakota. All land legally belonging to the Lakota and right there smack dab in the middle of all that acreage lay the Black Hills. Skip ahead to 1874. Custer led his 7th Cavalry to the area. Gold was discovered and that was that. The rush was on. Now the first prospectors to set up camp there in the Black Hills would soon be ejected by the military. But you can't stop what's coming, right? Especially not when gold's involved. More and more people continued to flock in hoping to strike it rich. And, well, if you're a fan of frontier history, then you probably know that Custer soon had his hands full elsewhere. Now, Deadwood was a true boomtown. In a very short span of time, there were about 5,000 people squatting there in what was known as Deadwood Gulch. And although sources and estimates vary, by 1877, you had anywhere between 12 to 25,000 people all bunched in together hoping to get rich or die trying. Just to put that population into perspective, if you've ever visited Deadwood, it now has a population of just over a thousand people. Imagine over five times that many, possibly ten times. The streets covered in a thick mix of mud and horse shit, the sound of hammers and saws echoing day and night, piano music glaring from the many gaming halls flanking the thoroughfare, all that noise occasionally punctured with the sound of random gunshots, screams of agony and ecstasy, all that with zero law whatsoever. Think back to the last episode you heard where we discussed how rough the towns of Hayes and Abilene were. And those places had city councils, mayors, laws, and statutes. Deadwood had none of that. No marshal, no sheriff. Hell, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm fairly certain even a U.S. deputy marshal would have had no jurisdiction in Deadwood in 1876. This was not legally the United States. This was Lakota land, plain and simple and every man and woman who ventured to the Black Hills did so at their own risk. This is the environment that Hickok and the others were headed into, and I'm sure everybody had their own different reasons for making the trip. Charlie Utter and his brother, for instance, were looking to open up a business, and they would, first selling supplies to prospectors and then starting up their own express mail route. As for Hickok, well, let's just say his motivations, much like the man, were complicated. Remember, Bill was a newlywed. Wife Agnes was still back east, but James Butler was determined to make his own way, to not have to rely on his wife's money. Matter of fact, while Bill allegedly borrowed $22.30, or roughly $600 in today's money, from a Doc Howard before departing Cheyenne, saying that his, quote, remittance hadn't come from the east. Now, if this is true, I can only assume that the remittance Bill was referring to was money from Agnes, seeing as how he himself was not employed. But of course, that is just an assumption on my part. Either way, it's never a good feeling not being able to support yourself. Hickok, just like everybody else headed to Deadwood, was hoping to strike it rich. As such, the wagon train departed Cheyenne on June 27th, 1876. Now if you were to make this same trip right now, it would take you about four and a half hours. But a wagon ain't nearly as fast as a Subaru and as such, it would take this caravan of hopefuls about two weeks including a brief respite at the ranch of John Hunton along the way as well as a layover at Fort Laramie. And it was there at Fort Laramie where it's believed the great Calamity Jane Cannery joined the expedition, along with a few other working gals, ladies with names such as Dirty Emma, Titbit, Sizzling Kate, Big Dolly, and my favorite, Smoothbore. Did you know Calamity Jane was just 24 years old, back in 1876? Poor thing just had a rough life. Originally from Missouri and orphaned at the age of 14, Jane was forced to make a living any way she could. Dishwasher, waitress, cook, and yeah, prostitute. Now there's a lot of debate about whether or not she went on any of the marvelous adventures that she claimed to have gone on. Scouting for the army and fighting under General Crook and all that. I am in no way a Calamity Jane expert, but I believe much of that has been debunked. Jane was simply a very colorful figure what we might call a character nowadays, and one hell of a storyteller. Likewise, there's nothing to the rumors of her and Hickok being a couple, despite Cannery claiming that the two were married. It's very likely that she and Bill had never even met until they set off on that wagon trip from Fort Laramie to Deadwood. According to Joseph White eye Anderson, who was along for the trip, Hickok barely even spoke to Jane on the way to Deadwood, other than occasionally allowing her a drink from his five-gallon keg of whiskey. And if the name Wide-Eye Anderson sounds familiar, you may recall me mentioning him back on the series I did on Liver-Eating Johnson. Mr. Anderson, also known as Oyster Johnny, lived an eventful life to say the least, and a long life, not dying until 1946. Dude lived long enough to see himself portrayed on the big screen, and I still have yet to determine whether or not he's a trusted source. He'd go on in his latter years to pen the book I Buried Hickok, and I really just need to bite the bullet and get me a copy. As far as this expedition goes, some of the things that Eye claimed are in dispute, while other statements pretty much line up. So like I always say, grain of salt, right? As for Hickok, Eye would recall that the former lawman's eyesight was pretty much gone by this point, and at nighttime he was practically blind. Still though, Anderson said that every morning, when the light was just right, Hickok would have target practice at about 25 paces and he never missed anything he shot at. Furthermore, he stated that Bill always carried his revolver's butt forward, oftentimes drawing and firing both simultaneously. Anderson specifically uses the phrase twist of the wrist when describing Hickok's draw. That little tidbit is for listeners Crick Water and Joe Wheeler. We've been having a fun little discussion as to the various methods Hickok would have likely used to carry and draw his pistols, as far as practicality is concerned. Long story short, nobody knows for sure. Uh, It is very likely that Hickok preferred the butt-forward carry, as did many men who spent long hours in the saddle or at the poker table, and he likely utilized the twist-and-draw method as opposed to the cross-draw. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Finally, on June 12, 1876, the expedition reached the bustling boomtown of Deadwood, a hell of a place to make a living. James Butler Hickok would only have 21 more days left to live. Believe it or not, Bill would locate a mining claim of his own during his first day or so in camp, or at least he said as much to his wife when he wrote to her on July 17th, stating that he had just been out prospecting and had plans to return the next day. That letter notwithstanding, any information regarding Hickok's time prospecting is as scant as scant can be, unless of course he was referring to panning for gold at the poker table, a vocation that would soon draw the ex marshals full attention. As such, he began making the rounds, Gambling at his preferred establishments, places like the Senate, shingles number no. three, and man's number no. ten. Not to be confused with Man's number no. sixty-nine four twenty. No word, however, on whether or not Wild Bill ever made it over to that whoremonger and cocksucker Al Swearingen's joint, the gym. Although if he had, I like to think the pussy would have been half priced, and unauthorized cinnamon and canned fucking peaches readily goddamn available, ad hoc free gratis. Sorry, uh, that's for all the Deadwood fans out there. I apologize. Also, for anybody who has seen the amazing HBO series Deadwood, in case you're curious, it is very unlikely that Wild Bill and future Deadwood lawman Seth Bullock ever knew each other. As Bullock would not arrive in Deadwood until August 1st, the day before Hickok, well, you know. Now, Bill and Charlie Utter would camp out there together, just across the creek from town, along with another old friend of theirs, California Joe, real name Moses Milner. About a decade older than Hickok, California Joe was every bit as capable. He did a lot of scouting work back in Kansas in the 1860s, probably where he and Bill first met. And whereas Hickok was expert with a pistol, California Joe was said to be hell with a long gun. And it was Joe, not Wild Bill, who was indeed promoted as Custer's chief of scouts. And it was also Joe who was quickly demoted when, in 1870, he got so blind drunk that the 7th calf had to bundle him up in the back of a damn wagon. A chief of scouts that can't sit a saddle ain't worth much, I reckon. Nevertheless, Joe and Hickok were good friends, and they, along with Charlie Utter, were often observed walking the streets and frequenting the saloons of Deadwood. That said, Wild Bill wasn't quite the same as he had been during his days in Kansas. And mostly for the same reasons we've already discussed. The issues with his eyesight, his rheumatism, a lack of steady income, Hell, he had to borrow money just to get to Deadwood, and once there, per one source, borrowed money damn near every day from Charlie Utter. And he had taken to drinking upon waking up, which is never a good sign. You start reaching for that bottle first thing in the morning, and the disease pretty much has you at that point. Now, I'm not going to sit here and claim to know whether or not Wild Bill was an alcoholic. All I will say is that as somebody who's had my own battles with the drink, there are signs and Hickok undeniably began exhibiting a few red flags. Speaking of addictions, you ever see that movie Wild Bill starring Jeff Bridges? Hickok is portrayed in this particular film as being quite the fan of opium, but I'm not really sure what that was based on. I couldn't find much other than vague references to both Wild Bill and Kit Carson at various times utilizing opium dens. Per a 2015 article published by CBS Philadelphia titled The Heroin Epidemic, Quote, Before heroin was first shot into the veins, there were opium dens scattered throughout the American West. The wealth of this drug has been attributed to the Chinese immigrants who first arrived to work on the railroads, even while Bill Hickok and Kit Carson preferred these dens to saloons, end quote. Is this true? I can find zero sources other than a variation of what I just said scattered across various websites. Nor was there any mention of opium in any of the books that I have on Hickok and Carson. That said, I don't know everything, and I damn sure ain't read everything. I do think, however, we can wholesale discount the part about them preferring opium dens to saloons. Hell, while Bill practically lived in saloons. And Carson was never much of a social butterfly to begin with. Would it have been possible for either man to sample opium? Sure, absolutely. I mean, one thing both of these guys had in common was chronic pain. And in those days, opium was readily available, as was a number of fun-time substances that we can't just easily obtain nowadays. And if it could be proven that either one of these guys took to puffing on an opium pipe, I do not think that's some sort of damning blight on their honor. But with all that said, I also very strongly question the assertion that they did, or at least to any significant extent. If you have any information on this, actual sources, please do enlighten me, josh at wildwestextra.com. Now, Bill's appearance there in Deadwood did cause quite the stir. Remember, he was a famous man at this junction of his life, but not all of the attention he attracted was the welcome sort. The lawless element of the boomtown, particularly those who fancied themselves in charge of Deadwood's more crooked activities, were especially concerned. After all, Hickok had been called in to tame the rough towns of Abilene and Hayes. Did he intend to do the same thing there in Deadwood? If so, that means a lot of ill-gotten money would soon dry up and maybe more than a few unsolved murders would be examined. More on this criminal element to come, but for now, let's go ahead and take a look at Bill's last days. There are some who assert Hickok was suffering from depression. And we know he was losing heavily at poker, which caused him to continue to borrow money. And he also began having premonitions of his own death allegedly telling his buddy Charlie and possibly others that he sensed Deadwood would be his last camp. Per one source, Utter even tried to get Bill to join him on a hunting trip, just to get him out of town, an invitation that Hickok quickly rejected, saying, quote, those fellers over the creek have laid it out to kill me, and they're gonna do it or they ain't. Anyway, I don't stir out of here unless I'm carried out, end quote. Now, this is just me speaking, but I have heard of similar premonitions, especially among men at war the strange phenomenon of foreseeing one's own imminent demise. I do personally believe that there is more to this world than we mere mortals can see, but I do think on rare occasions we're given a glimpse behind the veil, if only darkly, and if only just for a moment, especially when our time starts winding down. But like I said, this is just me talking, and I have been known to speak out of my ass more than once. Still though, even on August 1st, Hickok was said to have once again reflected on his upcoming death while leaning against the door of the number 10 saloon watching the masses in the street hustle pass. He even hinted at it in the letter he pinned to his wife, his last letter that he wrote earlier that morning. Agnes darling, if such should be we never meet again while firing my last shot, I will gently breathe the name of my wife, Agnes, and with wishes even for my enemies I will make the plunge and try to swim to the other shore. Signed J.B. Hickok, Wild Bill. Later that day, as was his habit, Hickok returned to play poker, each time asserting his usual right to sit at the table with his back facing the wall, a precaution he picked up years earlier. At some point that evening, a youngster by the name of Jack McCall set in on a game, and for once, Hickok didn't lose. By the time the two were done, McCall was dead-ass broke and Bill had pity on him, tossing the loser enough money to buy supper, a gesture that Jack rejected. Not a whole lot is known about Jack McCall's earlier life, other than him being from Kentucky. His real name was John, by the way, not Jack, something that didn't come to light until his second trial. It's been written that McCall drifted west to hunt buffalo originally, and that he possibly drove one of the wagons in Charlie Utter and Hickok's expedition to Deadwood. Just 24 or 25 years of age in 1876, McCall was then going by the alias Bill Sutherland, but was also known at various times as Broken Nose Jack. And yeah, we will be discussing him a lot more very shortly. The next day would be August 2nd. Bill dressed in all of his finery, including his favorite Prince Albert frock coat and, sometime around midday, made his way to Nuttall and Man's number 10 saloon. Only this time, nobody offered up their seats to Hickok, at least not the ones that he preferred, offering him a full view of the surroundings while keeping his back to the wall. Bill's fellow gamblers started ribbing him, laughing off his paranoia and just telling him to relax. And against his better judgment, Hickok finally relented and sat down anyways. He would still have a clear view of the front door, but not the smaller entrance to his rear. And as was the norm, Bill began losing badly. He even headed to the bar at one point to borrow 15 bucks from the house. Around 3 p.m., Jack McCall entered the establishment. Some would later claim he seemed drunk as he moved to the bar, working his way slowly down, unnoticed by Hickok, who at the time was having a friendly argument with fellow poker player and riverboat captain Bill Massey a distraction that allowed Jack to approach Bill from behind, once again unnoticed. Halting just a few paces away, McCall drew a revolver, aimed it at the back of Hickok's head, and pulled the trigger, yelling out, damn you take that, while doing so. And so it were that at 39 years of age, James Butler Hickok met his end. They say Bill's head jerked forward as the bullet exited through his right cheek between the upper and lower jaw bones. The rest of his body remained motionless for several seconds before slowly toppling to the floor. As for the coward McCall, he waved his pistol at the crowd as he backed out of the saloon, even squeezing the trigger, but it misfired. Turning to run, he hopped on the first horse he found, but being the damn fool he was, the saddle turned upside down and spilt Jack into the muck of the thoroughfare. And within minutes, he was apprehended. While Bill's body remained locked inside the number 10 in the meantime, Word of what had happened reached Charlie Utter, who was out of town, but soon came rushing in to see his friend one last time and claim the body. It would be Charlie who'd bury Bill, placing him in a pine coffin, white cloth lining the inside with black draping the exterior. The next morning, citizens of Deadwood came to pay their respect at Charlie's camp, filing past Hickok's coffin until that evening when he was laid to rest in the Ingleside Cemetery. Not for long, though. Uh, Three years later, to the day, Charlie Utter paid to have Bill's body reinterred to the new Mount Moriah Cemetery, where he now reposes. Story goes that Bill's mama was found with a newspaper reporting her son's death laying at her side, slowly rocking back and forth, blood covering her dress as she suffered from a lung hemorrhage. The Hickok family would state that she never fully recovered from the shock and was still mourning her son two years later when she passed away. Now, Jack McCall, as I said, was quickly apprehended, placed under guard, despite there being no formal law there in Deadwood. And instead of just quickly stringing the man up to the nearest pole, the local business leaders decided to have a trial, one that would be held in McDaniels Theater. A judge was selected, as was a jury. Attorneys were appointed, and not one to waste any time, the proceedings would begin the day after Hickok's death on August 3rd. Eyewitness testimony was heard, and even McCall got his chance to speak, saying that he killed Wild Bill as an act of revenge. According to him, Hickok had gunned down his brother years ago in Abilene. After some back and forth with the lawyers, the judge ordered the jury to their chambers with the verdict to be read at Man's Number 10 Saloon, where Bill was murdered. And the verdict was an astonishing not guilty. Upon hearing this, several men, including Charlie Utter, simply walked out in disgust, some even openly speaking about Lynch and McCall right there on the spot. Nevertheless, the assassin was set free. And believe it or not, Jack did not immediately leave town. At least not till old California Joe showed up and made it clear that Jack could either arm himself or get the hell gone. Needless to say, McCall got gone. So obviously justice was not served, right? I mean, there is no dispute whatsoever about Jack murdering Hickok. Everybody in the mama knows that it was him who walked into that saloon and put a bullet in the back of Bill's head. To let such a killing go unpunished, lawless town or not, didn't sit well with more than a few people, one of which was the Colonel George May, the prosecuting attorney during the trial. He, along with a deputy marshal out of Wyoming named A.D. Balcom, tracked Jack down to Laramie where the fool had been bragging about killing the famous Wild Bill. And it was there in Laramie where McCall was arrested, first taken to Cheyenne and finally Yankton, this time for a real trial. Now, I know what you're thinking, double jeopardy. I mean, once you're acquitted of a crime or found not guilty, you ain't supposed to be tried again on the same charges. But like I keep saying, Deadwood was an illegal town on illegal land. Any acts committed by a vigilance committee, such as the one who originally tried Jack for Hickok's murder, would not be officially recognized. So legally, this second trial was not double jeopardy. That said, for old Jack, it would be final jeopardy. He would be tried again, and this time it would be all legal-like. McCall, described as a restless, medium-sized man with slightly crossed eyes and a speech impediment, continued on with his claims about Wild Bill killing his brother, and he even said that Bill had robbed him of some gold dust during a poker game, and that he slapped Hickok across the face because of it. And I hope everybody who heard him say that had their boots on because the shit was getting a little high. Now, in October of 76, before the trial even began, McCall unsuccessfully tried to escape from jail. After this failed attempt, and probably thinking he had screwed up any chance at a fair trial, he then made a startling offer. He said he would turn state witness. And this is the part that really surprised me. A bit of information I had thus far never heard, and I'm really astonished that it's not more well known. I know he may not be the most reliable source, but according to Jack, a John Varnes of Deadwood paid him a certain sum of money to murder Hickok. A statement somewhat backed up by Jack only having $43 on his person when he was apprehended for Hickok's killing. But the very next day, when he was set free, he was seen sporting a fancy gold watch and a big fat wad of cash. So who the hell was this John Varnes guy? And if it's true, why would he want Hickok killed? Unfortunately, and much to my great frustration, I couldn't find much. Varnes was a gambler there in Deadwood, possibly a saloon owner, and he did have a reputation as a dangerous man. He, along with a Tim Brady, allegedly conspired to have Hickok killed, fearing that he'd soon pin on a badge and put an end to their easy money. Word is they tried to enlist the help of fellow gambler Charlie Storms and gunman Jim Levy, but both men wisely turned down the offer. And it was Varnes and Brady whom McCall named, saying that they were the ones that paid him to take Bill out. Now what little I could find out about Varnes, uh, evidently he was a big-time player there in Deadwood, as I alluded to, as far as crime was concerned. And the trouble with him and Bill went all the way back to Denver, with the two renewing their quarrel in Deadwood. One allegation has Varnes and another man get into an altercation in the Senate saloon, and while Bill pulling his pistol and holding it on Varnes as he attempted to mediate the situation. Another guy I just mentioned, Charlie Storms, He and John Varnes got into a shootout right there in the streets of Deadwood, with both men emptying their guns at each other and not hitting a damn thing. Eventually they called it quits and just went and got drunk together. Now Charlie Storms I am a little familiar with. I spoke of him on the episode I did on Luke Short and the Dodge City War. Storms was an old school gambler, one of them old boys who followed the money from one boomtown to another. He'd eventually end up in Tombstone, where he made the fatal mistake of throwing down on Luke Short. Let's just say that this was Mr. Storm's last gamble, and it weren't no win in hand. Now, both John Varnes and Tim Brady were sent for during this second trial, but they were not located. And I guess the issue was just kind of dropped. By the way, good luck Googling Tim Brady. Dude's name is just a little too close to a certain athlete. As for Varnes, uh, the most I could find out about the rest of his life were some unverified claims that he returned to Colorado and died an opium fiend. Now maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe this allegation that McCall was paid off has been soundly disproven and I'm just not aware of it. But the general narrative surrounding Wild Bill's death, as far as the motive goes, always just points to Jack McCall being angered after losing to Bill in poker and Bill's insult of offering to pay for the man's dinner. We know that Hickok did not kill Jack's brother. That has been debunked. And I guess we all just kind of took it for granted and accepted the fact that Jack was a small cowardly man who simply wanted to kill the famous Bill Hickok. With this new information, however, it does kind of make a little bit more sense. And if Jack was indeed paid to kill Hickok, then I, for one, would certainly love to learn more. For what it's worth, John S. McClintock, an early pioneer of Deadwood, wrote years afterwards in his memoirs that these allegations regarding Varnes had no foundation. So who knows? Here's a fun little side note. As recently as 2012, Val Kilmer was slated to play John Varnes in a movie titled The Hard Ride, with Elizabeth Shue starring as Agnes Hickok. According to IMDb, however, the movie is still in development, which probably means it'll never be made. So there you go. Make all of that what you will. If you have any information regarding John Varnes or Tim Brady and what became of either men after leaving Deadwood, For any other information regarding their role in Wild Bill's death, please hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. The trial would officially begin on December 4th, 1876, and last a total of two days. This time McCall was found guilty and sentenced to hang. And there in court when the verdict was read was Hickok's brother, Lorenzo. When he got word back in Illinois of his younger sibling's murder, The ever-meek-and-mild Lorenzo retrieved an old 36 caliber Colt from a trunk at home and set out for Dakota Territory, looking to make things right. Of course, once he got there, not only was Jack already under arrest, but the trial was just getting started, so Lorenzo just consoled himself knowing justice would soon be served. Now, there was one other revelation that came out during this trial, something you may find as curious as I did. Turns out this might not have been Jack McCall's first attempt at trying to assassinate Hickok. More than one witness testified that days before Wild Bill's murder, McCall had slowly approached him with a revolver only to have several people intervene and pull him away. I find this interesting because there's no record of Hickok being aware of this when it happened, nor of anybody telling him about it. And if they had told him about it, if he knew he was in danger, then you'd think he would have been more cautious on August 2nd. Or, I don't know, perhaps Wild Bill was so numb to people trying to kill him that it didn't give him much cause for alarm. Or it's simply not true. I don't know. The wills of justice turned slow even in 1876. At least they do when everything is done by the books. There were appeals, but in the end, Jack was to hang by the neck on the morning of March 1st, 1877. Nearly seven months after he put Hickok under. It were a Thursday, and this was to be the first legal hanging to ever take place there in Yankton County. At 8.30 a.m., Jack had a final consultation with a priest. He was, after all, human, and as such, susceptible to the very human need to find religion when you're about to meet your maker. By around 9 a.m., the marshal arrived at the jail to read Jack his death warrant. At approximately 9.30, McCall bid farewell to his cellmates and was led outside into the drizzling rain, a rain that did not stop a large crowd from congregating. Jack was then taken up to the gallows, his arms bound as he knelt to pray. Upon rising a black burlap sack was placed over his head followed by a noose around the neck. "Draw it tighter, Marshal," Jack urged. Finally, at 10:15 a.m., the trap was sprung. Jack McCall's last words were, "Oh God." He would be pronounced dead 12 minutes later and laid to rest in the Sacred Heart Cemetery there in Yankton. As for everybody else, uh, Charlie Utter would have quite a few years left on this earth. He'd continue working in various mining towns like Leadwood and Durango before moving on down south to Socorro, New Mexico, and eventually way down south to Panama, and it was there in Panama that he would die in July of 1915 at the age of 73. California Joe Milner would not be so fortunate. He'd only last about three months after Hickok's death, himself being killed in the same fashion shot from behind. Bill's widow, Agnes, would have a monument placed at his grave and then return back to work performing for the circus. She had a child, but one from before she and Bill ever got married, and once Agnes was too old to perform, she lived with said child, a daughter, until finally passing away in 1907 at the age of 80. She now rests in Cincinnati, buried next to her first husband. An old Calamity Jane lasted probably longer than anybody would have expected, Much like in the HBO series Deadwood, Jane Wood helped nurse the sick through a smallpox epidemic there in the Black Hills before moving on. She would later return, however, but her drinking had just got progressively worse, and she passed away on August 1st, 1903, buried right there in Deadwood next to her crush, Wild Bill Hickok. Now, you may find references to Wild Bill having a few illegitimate children. There was a lady named Jean McCormick, for instance, who claimed to be the love child of Calamity Jane and Hickok. This has been completely disproven, but it does kind of make you wonder, you know, did Hickok have any children? And the answer is maybe. You may recall from a previous installment that I mentioned a fortune teller named Indian Annie, who Hickok stayed with back there in Kansas. Well, her real name, we think, was Anna Wilson, and she did have a child named Willie in 1867. Many think that this was Wild Bill's kid and that he abandoned the boy who would sadly pass away in 1881 at just 13 or 14 years of age. This is total speculation, though, and there is no official record of Hickok having any children of his own. He does have quite a few notable relations, however, at least according to the totally reputable website FamousKin.com. According to them, the Bush boys, George W. and Jeb with an exclamation mark, our second cousins, five times removed from Wild Bill. Likewise with Christopher Lloyd. You may remember him as Doc from Back to the Future. Him and Hickok are fifth cousins, two times removed. And the list goes on. Zac Efron, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, Humphrey Bogart, Bill Gates. I finally had to stop reading the list. Every famous person you can imagine is supposedly related to Wild Bill Hickok. And I'm not even joking. Look it up. Chris Pratt, Rain Wilson, literally everybody. Look, I don't know if they are indeed related to Hickok or not, and I had never heard of this website before doing this episode, but I did recall hearing years ago that former President Obama and Hickok were related, so I went searching for an actual reliable source. And sure enough, per the New England Historical Society, Obama and Hickok are six cousins, six times removed. Whatever that means. Evidently, the two family trees go all the way back to a Thomas Blossom of Holland, who immigrated to Plymouth way back in 1629. So there you have it. I don't know about where you're from, but down here in my neck of the woods, we don't have all that five times or six times removed business. She's either your first cousin, your second cousin, or she's fair game. You know what I mean? All right. With that, I think we've about wrapped up the life of Wild Bill Hickok. Wait, no, we have not. No, we have not. Getting ahead of myself. No episode on the death of Wild Bill could be complete without addressing the dead man's hand. If you've ever played poker, you know what it is, right? Two pair, aces and eights. The same hand that Bill had been dealt right before Jack McCall put that bullet into the back of his head. Or so we're told. Is that true? Probably not. The idea that Wild Bill had aces and eights did not appear in print until 1926, a half century after his death, and it had no contemporaneous sources meaning nobody who was there ever mentioned it. And before that, the dead man's hand was described as a full house consisting of three jacks and a pair of tens. Per Hoyle's 1907 edition, a dead man's hand is jacks and eights as opposed to aces and eights. Truth of the matter is, nobody knows what cards Wild Bill was holding at the time of his death. That said, I have never been dealt aces and eights without taking at least a moment to think about Wild Bill, and I hope going forward you do the same. All right, now we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for staying with me. And please, if you like what you hear, share this podcast with somebody. Till next time, keep your back to the wall, especially if you try bluffing with aces and eights. Adios. You're at it.